Flyover Politic Podcast, the show for normal Americans. From this undisclosed bunker, here's your host, Tony Reed. And welcome back to Flyover Politic Podcast. It's the 19th of September, year of our Lord, 2019. And we're going a day early because, uh, yeah, I got some good stuff. So, as you probably know, we're going to do some Kavanaugh today. Yeah, it's kind of hard not to. And then just the regular old stuff. We're going to guns and hate tweets and news and social media nuggets. It's all there. I... You know, it, it's, I just got the phone from Big Sis in Colorado, and I was talking about Unbelievable to her, because that's where she lives. She lives in Westminster, Colorado. So I was, you know, telling her she should watch a series that, you know, a lot of people don't know about, as well, well, you know, I'll just say it up front. Uh, all you know about Unbelievable right now on Netflix's website is they canceled OA. That's all they're talking about. Nobody was talking about the show which I tweeted that it was a really good show. Um, they're just attacking them because they canceled a show that I thought was really, really fucking stupid, but whatevs. Um, <clears throat> but I do that last podcast about how horrible it is that a woman who is actually raped, not date raped, um, raped, is not believed. And I'm going to do a show today on Kavanaugh, some more false accusations. Specifically, the New York Times taking somebody's book, omitting facts, and once again, doing a smear job. So, without further delay, here's some media on Kavanaugh. It's been nearly one year since the explosive and emotional confirmation hearings of Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh. This morning, he's back in the news because of revelations in a new book. New York Times reporters Kate Kelly and Robin Pogrebin were pulled off their usual beats to cover the Kavanaugh hearings and felt there were still some unanswered questions in the aftermath. They've spent the last year taking a deeper dive. At a time of deep division in this country, his nomination was like taking a blowtorch to a gas tank. Liberals um, very much sort of assumed he epitomized uh, white male privilege and entitlement, that he was very likely a sexual predator. Um, they assumed he was a right-wing ideologue. Conservatives saw him as an upstanding, church-going family man who has an impressive record on the federal bench, who has promoted women on the court and his clerks, and he almost had his life ruined because of something that he did um, allegedly when he was a teenager. We wanted to see what was there. We wanted to take the claim seriously. But at the same time, be fair-minded, be objective, be thorough in the process. I think people sort of assumed we would have kind of a knee-jerk um, sort of sympathy for the women um, who came forward, and we certainly do on some level. But we also had to really put ourselves in his shoes. Do you think there was any room for Kavanaugh to come out somewhere between denial and confession in this and still be a Supreme Court justice? If Kavanaugh had gotten up there and said, I did some things I regret, I'm, I apologize to people I may have heard along the way, he would have been doomed as a Supreme Court justice. The authors end the book with their own take on the case. 
The facts showed us that Christine Blasey Ford and Deborah Ramirez's allegations have real credence. We really investigated the corroborating facts on those. But that in the, the, the last 36 years, Brett Kavanaugh has been a better man. I do hope that we have made people kind of look more closely at these events and these characters, ask themselves some hard questions that we've asked ourselves and others, and, and maybe have, a, you know, kind of open their minds. Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh is facing growing calls to be impeached in the wake of a new allegation of sexual misconduct when he was a student at Yale. But it echoes a similar but separate allegation made by Deborah Ramirez, who came forward last year accusing Kavanaugh of exposing himself to her at a Yale party. We had seven corroborating sources, um, including two classmates from Ramirez and Kavanaugh's uh, year at Yale, uh, who remembered hearing about the event with the identities of the players described uh, within days after it occurred. In an exclusive interview, Pogreven and Kelly told me how traumatic the alleged moment was for Ramirez. Nancy, why are those Democrats calling for Kavanaugh's impeachment? Uh, well, because, Anthony, Democrats both here on the Hill and on the campaign trail say that these new allegations are raising questions once again about the integrity of his confirmation process. They say that the FBI wasn't given enough time to adequately look into his background and that allegations like this are... Now, per SOP, the media jumped on this like a shark on some chum. Nets dedicate 30 minutes to promoting New York Times' anti-Kavanaugh hit piece. Smear merchants, CNN, MSDNC, spend 233 minutes peddling flimsy Kavanaugh attack. The 9 a.m. Eastern morning, CNN and MSNBC have spent nearly four hours of airtime peddling a dubious new charge of misconduct from Brett Kavanaugh. I'm not going to read all these because we're going to get to the punchline. It was all bullshit. New York Times late Saturday night. The liberal cable news appetite for fresh Kavanaugh scandal was so great that even after the authors were forced to issue a correction, I guess I just fucked up, it comes later, they didn't give a fuck. MSDNC, 166 minutes. New York Times correction, 6 minutes. CNN, 67 minutes. Correction, 3 minutes. Molly Hemingway, the book notes quietly that the woman Max Stiller named as having been supposed victimized by Kavanaugh and friends denies any memory of the alleged event. It's all bullshit. The following day, Hallie Jackson, former Obama aide, Christopher Kang offered his spin to help the Times save face after embarrassing update. We're going to play it in a second. You know what it is. Vox, to remove Brett Kavanaugh via impeachment, two-thirds of the senators present such a vote would need a vote against him. But if two law professors are right about the Constitution good behavior clause, there could be another way. And they put out a whole, how do we get rid of Kavanaugh? Tweets to respond to it. I'm old enough to remember when Democrats were worried about Trump not accepting the outcome of the election. Seems like some people might be holding a grudge. The victim herself doesn't recall the incident. Incident raised by a Clinton lawyer, definitely not weird. But more importantly, a 5-4 to four conservative Supreme Court, three important cases this year, with RBG fading, whatever could be the reason to dredge up unfounded claims. They're scared. They're scared. Because elections have consequences.
and the Supreme Court is one of them. Damn presidential candidates go all in on demand. Brett Kavanaugh be impeached. Yeah. I mean, the allegation is he dropped his pants and put his penis in somebody's face. Which nobody remembers. I was going to save it for... I wanted to do it, but you already know it's happened. But I I wanted to try to do this podcast, but it's impossible. Because every article's been edited, so it's all been back. But every one of them, they need to go. Sheldon Whitehouse. I'm confident Kavanaugh lied. While under oath, his intent was to deceive. The lies were material. That's perjury. Representative Joe Kennedy. Someone facing credible sexual assault allegations does not belong on our highest seat of justice. That's a lesson this country should not have to learn twice. We need an impeachment inquiry on Kavanaugh. We need court reform. And we need justice for survivors. Somebody enlightens him. Your great uncle Teddy was credibly accused of manslaughter after driving drunk off a bridge. He's subsequently reelected to the Senate seven times. Sit the fuck down, Opie. <laughs> yeah. Jennifer Rubin. At the time, I argued a sham investigation was a mistake. Democrats called Sunday for a new investigation in Kavanaugh. Response to the New York Times piece it said Kavanaugh was seen sexually harassing a female student one in ale. Eventually, the facts came out. Jen Rubin belongs on a GOP mindset that I hope is dying. It is one that says Democrats can sling unsubstantiated character assassination attempts at Republicans. It's best just to give in and let them win because they might keep doing it. No more, somebody replies. Ron Fortney, really want to talk about credibility? This is another example of MSM making a mistake, admitting it, fixing it. You worship a president who doubles and triples down on lies. It was obviously a calculated move with the admission of a mistake, a tiny printed afterthought added only after the damage intended had been done. They knew it was a lie, but they work for the DNC. They've read the book. Ted Cruz, read stunning New York Times correction. If a high school freshman did this on a school paper, he'd get an F. This is an outfit that has won multiple Pulitzers. Presumably, they know how to actual journalist. It's almost as if the reporters, editors, publishers have a political agenda. Editors note. I'll start. Byron York. For those of you who choose not to read the New York Times Kavanaugh hit piece, here's a new editor's note. An earlier version of this article, which is adapted from a forthcoming book, did not include one element of the book's account regarding an assertion by a Yale classmate that friends of Brett Kavanaugh pushed his penis into the hand of a female student at a drunken dorm party. The book reports that the female student declined to be interviewed, and friends say she does not recall the incident. The information has been added to the article after we already fucking attacked them. This is journalism. Article. Under pressure, New York Times correct bombshell omission and Kavanaugh book smear. We were warned it was coming, and on September 17th it arrives. The education of Brett Kavanaugh, an investigation by New York Times reporter Robin Porrigan and Kate Kelly. An edited excerpt appears in the Sunday Review. Brett Kavanaugh fit in. She did not. The she is Deborah Ramirez, who uncorroborated sexual allegations of Kavanaugh from the memories of a dormitory party at Yale, were part of a frenzy of the Kavanaugh hearing. On Sunday night, the Times offered its bombshell update. The female student declined to be interviewed, and friends said she doesn't recall the episode. But they still put it in the book. The excerpt of the book leaned heavily on the sociology aspects of the controversy of pitting haves versus the have-nots. 
placing Kavanaugh in an unflattering category, the university's historic privileged white male population. The the belated class war about 1980 Yale was apparently launched to garner sympathy for Ramirez and distract from her thin account of the incident, already dealt with by the FBI during the Supreme Court hearing, an investigation which began with assault from Blasey Ford. So let's think about this for a second. Nobody in our media said this has already been covered, checked. It's bullshit. Nobody. They didn't put that in the articles. Whole thing is about how awesome she is. She babysat. Lurid details. During the winter of her freshman year, a drunken dormitory party unsettled her deeply. She and some classmates have been drinking heavily when she says a freshman named Brett Clavinaugh pulled his pants down and thrust his penis at her, prompting her to swat it away and inadvertently touch it. Some of the onlookers who had been passing around fake penises earlier in the evening laughed to Miss Maris. It wasn't funny at all. He's a more privileged classmate. By preying upon her in this way, she added, Mr. Cavanaugh and his friends made it clear, I'm not smart. But while we found Dr. Ford's allegation credible during a 10-month investigation, Ms. Ramirez's story could be more could be more fully corroborated. We also uncovered a previously unreported story about Mr. Cavanaugh in his freshman year that echoes Mrs. Ramirez's allegation. A classmate, Max Steyer, saw Cavanaugh with his pants down at a different drunken dorm party where friends pushed his penis into the hand of a female student. Mr. Steyer runs a nonprofit organization in Washington that's Democratic, notified, oh, they didn't add that in there, notified center in the FBI about this account, but the FBI did not investigate. Mr. Steyer has declined to discuss it publicly. The female student declined to be interviewed and friends said she not. I'm just reading the bolded parts. An earlier version article, yeah, the Washington Examiner, Jerry Dunleavy, has more details that, for some reason, failed to garner the same attention as the original New York Times story. We spoke multiple times to Kaiser, who also said that she didn't recall the altogether or others like it. Porbin and Kelly wrote, in fact, she challenged Ford's accuracy. Those facts together I don't recollect, and it just doesn't make any sense, Kaiser told the author. It would be impossible for me to be the only girl at a get-together with three guys, have her leave, and then not figure out how she's getting home. Kieser told Probigan and Kelly, I just really didn't have confidence in the story. Probigan and Kelly, however, told Ford's story rings true and challenged Kaiser's recollection. It is possible that Ford's account is wrong and the Kaiser lack of recollection is proof of that. They wrote, but said Kaiser's memory might be affected by her struggles with alcohol and substance. So she doesn't believe it because she's a fucking drunk. Okay. Jerry Dunleavy some more. I was told behind the scenes that certain things could spread about me if I didn't comply. Kristen Blasey Ford's friend, Leland Kaiser, who now says she doubts Ford's story on Kavanaugh. Here's a sampling of the machinations by Ford. A group text recounts in the book between Ford's friends following the hearing, including discussions on how to convince Kaiser to modify her story. Cheryl Amate, a grade behind Ford at Holton, urged Kaiser's friends to talk to her. Maybe one of you guys who are friends with her can have her heart-to-heart, Amity, Texas. I don't care, frankly, how fucked up her life is. Amity called Kaiser a major stumbling block. 
Another four classmate, Lulu Canella, said she had, was to meet with Kaiser within an hour. Another friend, a man who's gone to Holton's brother's school, suggested making Kaiser's addictive tendencies, the authors describe in the book, her struggles with alcohol and drugs, widely known. Perhaps it makes sense to let everyone in the public know what her condition is, the man Texas. McLean, a former FBI agent, denies pressuring Kaiser to the authors. The whole thing is bullshit, folks. It's political. We said it then. We say it now. Other article. Son of witness who denied Blasey Ford's Kavanaugh assault claim speaks out. Pressured to lie by Blasey Ford allies. We try to get to the point. <sighs> Nearly a uh, poor Leland Kaiser's struggles continue. GoFundMe account set up for Mrs. Kaiser by her son reads, despite her lifelong friendship with Kristen Blasey Ford and her opposition to Brett Kavanaugh nomination, Kaiser reinsists immense personal pressure and courageously came forward with the truth, putting herself and her life at risk. As a result, she faces great personal hardship. The harsh glare of the public eye has taken tremendous physical, emotional, and financial toll on her. Leland stood up and did what was right when she had everything to lose and nothing to gain, the Post added. The account added a quote from the Hemingway and Carrie Savento's book, Justice on Trial, Kavanaugh Confirmation in the Future of the Supreme Court. The person with the most to lose and least to gain for telling the truth about Kavanaugh may have been Leland Ingram Kaiser, who put her commitment to the truth above her political preference and even friendships. Leland is a major stumbling block, Amity reported. While asserting she didn't want her to make anything up or out of whole cloth, she offered ideas for things that could sound supportive of Ford's story, such as that she'd been in a similar situation with Blazy Ford that summer. I was told behind the scenes that certain things could be spread about me if I didn't comply. This is just fucking unbelievable. And our media... Blackout, ABC, NBC, ignore pro-Kavanaugh bombshell, CBS gives scant 36 seconds. Total roundup, coverage of the book, ABC 11 minutes 23 seconds, CBS 7 minutes 3 seconds, NBC 13 minutes 21 seconds. Coverage of Leela Kaisen saying she disbelieved Ford and was pressured to lie, zero ABC, zero NBC, 36 seconds on CBS. 36 seconds. So what happened when we find it's a lie? And the correction comes out, and nobody seems to care. Well, then we take these authors, and they blame the editor on CBS. CBS, or excuse me, on um, yeah, they're on, they're on The View, I think. Uh, CBS says Trump's bad for criticizing the smear campaign. And MSNBC does a quote I was going to read, but I wanted to save it for the soundbite. What, it doesn't really matter. I mean, it doesn't mean it's a lie. In, in your draft of the article, did it include those words that have since been added to the article? It did. 
It, it did. did. So somewhere in the editing process, those words were Yeah, trapped. I mean, I think what happened actually was um, that, you know, we had her name, and, and, you know, the Times doesn't usually include the name of the right. victim. And so I think in this case, the editors felt like maybe it was probably better to remove it. And in removing her name, um, they removed the other reference to the fact that she didn't remember okay, it. Okay, so, so the way in your draft for the Times, you used basically the exact words yes, that are in the did. book that I deliberately left off the name exactly. because that passage begins with the name. Yes. And so in their removal of the name, they ended up removing the whole what sentence. follows it. Yes. And I, I mean, so I think it was just sort of an editing, you know, done in the haste of, uh, in the editing process, as you know, for were closing you, the section. Were you involved in the decision to amend this and do the correction on the addition online to the piece? We discussed it. Yeah. I mean, we think we felt like this, there was so much heat. You know, there's so much, everyone has been kind of seizing on various aspects of this that we certainly didn't want this to be an issue anymore. And we certainly never intended to mislead in any way. We wanted to give as full a story as possible. President Trump is doubling down on his defense of Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh after the latest allegation of sexual misconduct. The president calls it a smear, while Democrats say the FBI failed to check out that claim a year ago before Kavanaugh was confirmed. Nancy Cordes is on Capitol Hill. Nancy, have we heard from Kavanaugh himself about this? Uh, Anthony Kavanaugh has not responded to this new allegation, though in the past he has denied the other accusations. President Trump, on the other hand, not staying quiet. He is taking on a familiar target, the New York Times, for publishing and then adjusting the story. The Times later issued a clarification, noting that the female student declined to be interviewed for the book, and friends say that she does not recall the incident. We all remember this pattern from last time around. Shoot first, correct the facts later. Republicans slammed Democrats calling for Kavanaugh's impeachment. This is not an allegation. It's barely a third-hand rumor. Of all the people MSNBC could have invited on Monday to give a cool, calm, and rationale response to the New York Times issuing a correction to its reporting that the alleged victim of an incident involving Brett Kavanaugh does not remember the incident, they chose former Obama White House Deputy Counsel Deputy Assistant to the President Christopher Kong. Kang's big takeaway from the correction was just because she doesn't remember having Brett Kavanaugh's penis shoved in her face, does not mean it didn't happen. MSNBC Live host Hallie Jackson began by asking Kong to explain why we should believe this story, considering groups such as his demand justice, say we should believe the victim even though the victim does not want to talk about it and her friends say she does not remember the alleged event. Kong said that if Kavanaugh does not like being accused of sexual assault and sexual harassment it is his own fault for not calling the FBI to perform a full and exhaustive investigation. Kong then speculated, quote, The fact that the woman may have been drunk and not remembered the incident in particular doesn't mean it didn't happen. It doesn't mean that there weren't witnesses who have come forward to say that it happened. End quote. The Times' big witnesses in its piece was Max Steyer, who just happened to be a former Clinton defense attorney at the same time Brett Kavanaugh was working for Ken Starr. When asked by Jackson whether Democrats should impeach Kavanaugh, Kong replied absolutely, but unwittingly admitted that the Times piece has nothing to do with that. We've been calling on House Democrats to take action since April to look into the sham Kavanaugh confirmation process. 
During the entire 10 o'clock hour, there was no conservative alternative to Kang's wild speculation or to rebut his old allegations. Here is a transcript for the September 16th show. Click expand to read more. So not only did the New York Times make it up, they knew it was wrong, but they ran with it because they wanted to get airtime and be good liberals. There's pictures of these two ladies all over the place. Look at them. They're so brave. Yada, yada, yada. They fucked up on the tweet to begin with. Blundering New York Times deletes baffling tweet on Kavanaugh's harmless penis. The New York Times bias and shoddy journalism played out yet again on Twitter. Over this weekend, the paper was forced to delete tweets after a bizarre series of postings meant to promote the paper's latest hit job on Kavanaugh regarding the book excerpt claiming the college-age Kavanaugh exposed himself at a party. The Times, New York Times opinion weirdly began having a penis thrust in your face at a drunken dorm party may seem like harmless fun. What? The tweet continued, but when Brett Kavanaugh did it to her, Deborah Ramirez says it confirmed that she didn't belong at Yale in the first place. That's the tweet. The tweet was posted at 5.13 p.m., was quickly deleted. Two minutes later, another tweet appeared. We have deleted an earlier tweet to this article that was poorly phrased. New York Post writer Laura Italiano noted, soon after the retraction also vanished, around 11 p.m., another tweet appeared, attempted to clean up the mess. We deleted a previous tweet regarding this article. It was offensive, and we apologize. This one hasn't been deleted. On Sunday night, an updated version of the article in question appeared. The female student declined to be interviewed and Fred says she does not recall the episode. Last week on September 11th, the New York Times tweeted, 18 years have passed since the airplane took aim at the World Trade Center. Yeah, there we go. Mm-hmm. And then Tom writes, it's going to say crappy Jew year. This is all the New York, New York Times, folks. These are the people that are objective that are going to spend two years saying Trump's a racist, and that's their objective, because Russia didn't work. We covered that, too. Quint Fogarty, Ron Paragon, Robin Paragon, asked on New Day to respond to the reportedly by McLean Adone that she authored the controversial New York Times Kavanaugh tweet. Alyssa Camerato, political reporting that Times Insider says that it was you, Robin, so I just want to get your response to that. Paragon said, all I can say is the tweet was written and the tweet was sent out and it shouldn't have, it shouldn't have happened. Cameron, but do you want to respond to Times Insider It says it was you? Paragon, you know, I just feel like it's a distraction on all the things to try and get back over that. Here's Paragon running her suck controversy about a tweet the New York Times sent out. And this one was about the Debbie Ramirez experience. This one did come up. This one was that she says that it was during a dorm party that Brett Kavanaugh exposed himself and actually um, sort of thrust his crotch uh, unclothed into her face. And the way the tweet characterized that moment um, was as harmless fun. You may consider this, quote, harmless fun. Whose wording was that? You know, I think we, we decided to try to not necessarily excavate blame for this tweet, but to realize that in a vacuum it was, you know, ill-worded and, and, and poor judgment and shouldn't have gone out, and so we took it down and apologized. 
Um, I think what we, the reason we decided to run this excerpt was to contextualize the allegations of Deborah Ramirez, which is what our book does, which is one of these stories that we felt got passed over too quickly in the confirmation process, and to give her story sort of the fullness of real true investigation and the fact that we have seven people who remember it. And that was the, sort of the purpose of the excerpt, and to really kind of flesh that out when it never really got its due. No, for sure. And we will get into the substance of that because it is really important. But it's just the wording of the something like that happening at a party being harmless fun. And according to Politico, Politico is reporting that a Times insider um, says that it was you, Robin. So I just wanted to get your response to that. All I can say is the tweet was written and the tweet was sent out and it shouldn't have. Um, it shouldn't have happened. But do you want to respond to Times Insiders who say it was you? You know, I, I just feel like it's, it's a distraction on all this thing to try and to go back over that. Yeah. The reason we did this was to revisit these events with 10 months of reporting to give an in-depth portrait, frankly, to actually look more closely at Brett Kavanaugh and who he is, wh- what kind of person he was as a, young, as a young boy, you know, through high school, through college, what kind of professional he was. What were his 12 years on the court before he got to the court? Which, and we actually found that he was, you know, we have found that we corroborate these stories of Deborah Ramirez and Christine Blasey Ford, but in the 36 years since, Brett Kavanaugh has been a better man. You know, whether he realized the error of his ways, whether and he consciously reformed himself or he grew up and simply matured, he has been an exemplary judge. Everyone we talked to couldn't speak more highly. Does anybody believe that last part, that we just wanted to see who Brett Kavanaugh was? No, we were trying to still get him because we're liberals. She later owned up to it. Authoring the tweet, I drafted this with this in mind and have actually the opposite effect, which is to anticipate those who would say a guy pulling down his pants at a party when they're drunk is on the spectrum of sexual misconduct. It's not sexual assault. It's not rape. What's the big deal? Later, she explained the empathy driving the deleted tweet, saying having that happen to have people laugh at her and target her was actually usually meaningful and made an impact on her life for the rest of her life. So for those who minimize it and dismiss it, I was trying to help them understand that it had the opposite effect and seemed to undermine her. With no corroborating evidence and identified witness that denied the allegation, the authors merely state that the allegation in their gut rings true. She asserts that Kavanaugh changed. Unbelievable. Those reporters are truly vile. They don't seem to care. There is zero evidence Brett Kavanaugh did anything to any of these women. This is what they do. Gerald Byer, one of the authors, New York Times piece on Kavanaugh, Robin Perrigan, retweeted a Jane Meyer New Yorker's tweet that says Max Steyer is a Rhodes Scholar. Followed up tweet from Meyer corrects he's not a Rhodes Scholar. Perrigan has not retreated the less popular correction. This Steyer guy, who's a liberal, and who's trying to corroborate anything they ever said. Anna Preisler plans to introduce House Resolution Tuesday calling for the impeachment inquiry into Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh, who over the weekend was hit with previously unreported accusation of missexual conduct, which is not true. It was reported and found to be false. How is Paragon covering it now? How Fox News twisted the Kavanaugh scandal into a way to attack the New York Times. Here's one of the New York Times authors of the article with glaring omissions from her anti-Kavanaugh book, also wrote the New York Times tweet dunked on by the left and right that had to be deleted, apologized for, going with conservatives twisted 
instead of pounced. This article centers solely around the fact that Fox News is calling this a correction when the New York Times is calling it an editor's note. Her exact words, as soon as we realized this, we corrected it. Jill Abertson says the recent fake allegation about Kavanaugh, which the woman doesn't remember happening, is important because someone saw it. That someone is Max Steyer, Clinton impeachment lawyer. Journalist? Nah. Activist? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Here's a pushback. Molly Hemingway, Mojo, folks. And the view. And on this, one of them actually uttered the phrase, we don't have an agenda. So, Britt, as a piece of journalism, how do you assess the story? This is a story that should never have gotten anywhere near print. I mean, this, 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 remember now, we're talking here about a secondhand account from a witness that the authors did not speak to and who is not speaking. And he is said by friends to be saying this happened, right? So it isn't even a first-hand account. So right there, you got a huge strike against you if you're trying to get the story into print in the, in the old New York Times, right? And then on top of that, you have the fact that the woman herself is not talking, the alleged victim is not talking, and has told, and she has told friends that she didn't remember this. So, I mean, I can only imagine what would have happened when I, back in my newspaper days, if I went to an editor and says, this is what I've got. I mean, I can just see him picking up the copy and throwing it across the room, and you couldn't get anywhere near, this is nowhere near publishable. It's not, it's not even remotely close. So they're, um, they kind of gamely defend themselves by saying, well, the editor did this. Now, you've, and a lot of writers, I'm one of them, you know, you've had a book excerpted in print, right? right. They take your book and they, and they make a newspaper piece out of it. Right. You watch pretty carefully, don't you? Of course you you do. On top of that, remember this. They say, and have been saying in television interviews in recent days, that they believe that these accusers, Deborah Ramirez, you remember her, and and, uh, and this woman that was the alleged victim in this case, um, that he did abuse them, right? But they also go on to say that they believe he basically has led an exemplary life, Kavanaugh led an exemplary life since then, and that they think, you know, basically he's a good guy and has been a, you know, has been a reputable judge and a man with no history of this sort of stuff. Well, you know, after all we heard about him during those hearings, you would not think that necessarily about him. And you would think that that might be the subject of the article that, that, that based on, you know, would be a book excerpt. Yes. What did they choose, however, to excerpt, right? They chose to, to use, to, to excerpt this secondhand Right. Uh, uncorroborated account. The flimsiest thing they had exactly. is what they went with. Right, because it was the most damaging and therefore likely to achieve the most cachet uh, among the audience that they're clearly trying to appeal to, and which I would submit they're probably... When you talk about journalistic integrity and why you look at the American public on media, their views on it, why it is so low, 
I, I grew up watching my dad read the New York Times, and I would, I would read it with him, and it was a place where I knew there was sourcing, at least beyond one name. And now we're in this place where there isn't a difference many times between tabloid news yeah. and a New York Times article. And that, to me, is really sad, and frankly, it plays right into the president's hands when he talks about the media. It plays into his base. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Somebody, yeah. It's the, true, the right? I mean, you, you can want... So, New York Times, congratulations. Mm-hmm. If the president gets reelected, you are helping him get there. Because when you write pieces like this, it's sloppy and it's lazy, and you have not one name in there that was actually directly involved in anything that happened that was um, named in this piece. Not one. But I, also, but I still go back to the issues with our reporting today. And, and I do think that the, I think the American people deserve better. I don't and I, I also think it's unfair to drag other people's lives through the mud when you don't have credible sources to back up your reporting. I think about his two daughters, whether or not, look, it's not a black and white world. It's what he said, what she said. I think the public have, have their own opinions about this already. My right? problem is now there are other she people said, she involved. said, she said. Why, why is there this glaring omission in the New York Times story? Uh, there were... Molly Hemingway and others on Twitter were saying that, in fact, she had no recollection of this happening, and her friends uh, were saying the same thing. Mm-hmm. And I could not believe the New York Times would write this piece without that information contained in it. I, are you surprised? A 24 hours? Was it 24 hours went by before they clarified that fact? And let me just ask also, our producers just put in there that this Max Steyer may be respected, but was it not relevant to note that he was opposing counsel on the other side of Brett Kavanaugh and the Monica Lewinsky uh, legal proceedings. I, 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 just, I don't understand why they didn't put this information in the article. And here we have, again, a New York Times piece where Brett Kavanaugh is accused of something. And, uh, and again, the very woman who was uh, the alleged victim in this alleged incident mm-hmm. is saying she doesn't recall it happening. And so uh, I'm... I'm which is caution uh, Democrats to call Claire McCaskill and talk to her and ask her how that worked for her yeah. and other Democratic Senate candidates in 2018. And in terms of politics, this may have been an important story to cover and to, and to watch and to feel deeply about during the Christine Blasey Ford uh, hearings, but it didn't work for the Democrats. And here we go again. Here's how 2020 Democrats are responding. Elizabeth Warren, Kamala Harris, Beto O'Rourke, Julian Castro have all called for Kavanaugh to be impeached, while Joe Biden and Amy Klobuchar have called for further investigation. That's where, personally, I think they should be. We don't have all the information. Pete Buttigieg reportedly told CNN that Kavanaugh doesn't, if Kavanaugh doesn't resign, he should be impeached. There has not been any new statements from any of the candidates since the Times updated the story overnight that the female student declined to be interviewed and friends say she does not recall the episode. It seems like their Shannon Petty piece are so many unanswered questions questions here. I'm just so so surprised that candidates are making conclusions here that are impossible to make. Again. My team spoke to 45 individuals and took 25 written statements. We laid out the information we received, including some of the ugliest of claims. In the end, 
There was no credible evidence to support any of the allegations. My office never received anything from Mr. Steyer or his unnamed friends. After interviewing eight people related to the Ramirez allegations, not once was Mr. Steyer's name mentioned. Okay, you're going to say... Exactly that, that there were all sorts of allegations that were swirling about, and Democrats brought them to Republicans' attention. This one, we're told, was told to two Senate Democrats. They didn't even find it as credible as the Julie Swetnick gang rape cartel allegations or the Rhode Island rape boat allegation. So if it were such some, something that did need investigation uh, and the Senate Democrats didn't think that, that is really saying that it didn't Senator need even Kuhn, a low standard. Senator Kuhn said it deserved he, to he, he has never he, said that he talked to the actual majority that was he, handling the investigation. Wrote, wrote a letter saying, I would like the FBI to take a look. It's, I don't know whether they would have found something credible or not, but if you're if you're vetting a Supreme Court nominee, it, you, you, ought to, you ought to follow up on an allega- actually, on an allegation that a U.S. senator says, this is worth doing. No, Chris Coons knows how the, how the FBI uh, investigation was set up, and he was part of the discussions about that. In fact, you don't want to make any allegation, no matter how lacking in credibility, no matter if there's a victim who denies any knowledge of it, you don't want to slow down the working of a nomination process just for a delay tactic that is lacking in credibility. I think this is sort of ground zero for why so many people mistrust the media, why the New York Times has the nickname for New York Slimes with many people in conservative circles. Um, The Times actually had to run an editor's note following up. How did this vital fact get left out? Okay, thank you so much for the question. We're eager to clear the air on this. First of all, there was no desire to withhold important information from our readers. We have all of it in the book, and the essay is an adaptation of the book um, that, of course, we had to edit for uh, length and clarity. Um, the, The thrust of the essay was about, probably a bad word choice, the point of the essay was about Deborah Ramirez, uh, a woman who had gone to college with Justice Kavanaugh and had this uh, experience where she alleged that he exposed himself to her and it was a very troubling event. And we lay out all the reasons why that was, not just the moment itself, but the experience she was having at Yale being very difficult. Within that, we talked about this new, as yet unreported allegation because we thought it was germane. It was a similar type of situation to the Ramirez one. During the editing process, there was an oversight and this key, this key detail about the fact that the woman herself has told friends she doesn't remember it and has not wanted to talk about it got cut. And it was an oversight and the Times adjusted it and uh, we're very sorry that it happened. I understand that the woman didn't want her name out publicly. Um, If not, why is her name in the book? Her name is in the book because we think it's relevant information and we think it's accurate. And we know that her name was provided to uh, members of the Senate and the FBI by a witness named Max Steyer, who is a good governance activist in Washington, who's a respected figure. And he had provided this name. The name is in documents. It's in a letter. He did at one point, I understand, do work for Williams and Connolly. Uh, Why wasn't on- that in the piece? Because that, that is, if, if we're talking about credibility. Right. Uh, I understand. It's, it's, it's relevant background. In this case, it was a very short mention, and we only talked in brief terms about what he's doing right now. Um, so we didn't see all of that context to be necessary. But I understand why you're bringing it up, and I think it's fair. Did you read it right before it went to print? You know, I, I, we thought we had. 
Yeah, and as soon as we realized this, we corrected it. And then and they wrote an editor's note and they restored it. But didn't you realize it because Molly Hemingway made the correction? And I just I just want to know blankly, can you understand why so many people think that this yes, might be a Yes, and I actually job? think, Megan, it's a good point because the reason we did this book in the first place was that this was such an incredibly polarizing event mm -hmm. in our country's history. Everyone saw in it what they wanted to see. It was used for political purposes at the time. It's being used again for yeah, political purposes Yeah, we're living out a version now. of that right now. Right now. As and this is writ large. I mean, people have seized on details in our book. Um, you know, frankly, you know, it's fine to have a, a series of Democratic candidates calling for impeachment, but that was before the book came out, which is today. Um, and you also have Trump kind of jumping on, on things as if we have an agenda, which, you know, that was not our intent. Our intent is to revisit these facts with detail and depth and, you know, then kind of have people open. The book is the agenda. The book was their way of continuing to report on Kavanaugh to try to help Democrats so they could try to impeach him, which won't happen. But it's now the sixth different allegation against a judge that is made up bullshit, where our media knows it's made up bullshit, but they're just doing what the Democrats need right now. They need to continually discredit him. And folks... It's, it's beyond activism. It's sore loserism. You literally lost the election. This is what happens when you lose the election. The president gets to elect nominees. When this happened under Obama, and he put two activists on the bench, you guys, oh my God. The media was up in arms when people said, well, they can't be fucking Supreme Court justices. Kagan, Sotomayor, holy crap. They're uber libs. I mean, right now you have RGB up there. She doesn't even do anything. She's fucking incapacitated. But they won't let her retire. Unless she dies, she will not be replaced. Even though she can't do her job. Because they just want to get the presidency back and get a bunch of liberals up there so they can start going around the law like they do on everything fucking else. This is unbelievable, but totally believable. Because this is our media. It's another hit smearing a man who did nothing. He didn't do anything. It's lies. And when they can't get it to stick... They write books and do investigative journalism and say they're just doing their job. Well, for 36 years since Yale, we can't find anything on this guy. So he learned. No, maybe he never was what you said he was. Because if for 36 years you can't find anything, maybe these lies by Democratic activists are just that. Lies. Fucking lies. Gonna go to a music break and come into Fire for Effect on guns, climate, bunch of other fun shit. I heard this song on the Rambo trailer, and I can't believe I like this. I guess this was huge, and I'm not into popular music, so I didn't know, but this has been like a huge hit since July, so I'm three months late, but whatevs. This is Little Nas X, I think is his name, and Billy Ray Cyrus. Old Town Road, I actually like this song. Don't judge me. 
We start on guns, and then when we left last podcast, we had the Beto O'Rourke show where he was going to take everybody's fucking guns, yada, 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 and I said everybody's going to be doing it. So, Camilla Harris would force gun owners to sell their assault weapons back to the government. Yeah. They are weapons of war with no place on the street of a civil society. 
prepared to take executive action to do so. I've seen assault weapons kill babies and police officers, so one... So, one, I'll tell you, when elected president of the United States Congress continues to fail to have the courage to do something about this, I'm prepared to take executive action, which would be unconstitutional and would not happen. Democratic presidential candidate Beto O'Rourke claimed over the weekend that Texans who own ARs have told him they support his plan for extreme gun control. Texans who own AR-15s, they told me this themselves. I don't need this. I don't need to hunt. I don't need to protect myself. It was fun to use. I like taking out the range, but I give it this back or cutting it to pieces or selling it to government. Blah, 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 blah. Blah, blah, blah. Dana Loesch put a picture of Anchorman. What nutless wonders have you been talking to? I'm from Texas, and I'm happy to say nope, not giving them up. Another Texan responded, real Texans didn't say that. Another person said, laugh my ass off. Robert continuously makes up stories about urinals and everything else. If his idea is so good, hmm, why is it that uh, sold out Arizona gun store offers Beto specials on AR-15s and AK-47s? In response to O'Rourke, hell yes, we're going to take your guns. A Tempe, Arizona gun store owner ran a Beto special promotion the next morning, selling out both types of rifles by the afternoon. When O'Rourke made the claim during Thursday night's Democratic presidential candidate debate, Alpha Dog firearm owner Matt Boggs was outraged, he says in an interview with the Hollow Net. I saw the comment that he made, and I was like, kind of like, you know what? The hell with this guy. <clears throat> Update. Sold out. More deals will come on the website soon. Y'all broke our internet today, Beto O'Rourke said. Hell yes, we're going to take your ARs. Well, Beto was discounting AR-15s to such a low price that every American can afford one. How about a low, low price of $349.99? Alpha Dog Firearms, Arizona.com. We especially like the availability online only bit, as it will, of course, trigger Camilla Harris, who promises to close the online sale loophole. Well, you know why it's legal? Anybody? I buy it online. It's sent to a gun dealer here. I pay a fee for that. And then I do my background check again here and pay them a fee. So technically, from people I've talked to, you get double background checked. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. New York Times, CNN amplifies CEO letter demanding gun control. 145 CEOs that have nothing to do with guns. So they're just virtue signaling. And my favorite, just last month, 53 Americans died in mass shootings, while 40,000 died from obesity. Yeah. Sit on that statistic for a while. Then comes climate. I watched one of these sound bites live. But I want to frame it because I always say global cooling warming change. That's my lifetime. I remember when I was a kid, I was supposed to be under icebergs. And I don't mean lettuce. And then it turned into warming. Now it turned into change because it can't really prove the warming. 
This is a soundbite from 30 fucking years ago, aired on NBC. There is an even greater threat which scientists can only speculate about. As global temperatures rise, they may cause the massive West Antarctic ice sheet to slip more rapidly. Then we'll be facing a sea level rise not of one to three feet in a century, but of 10 or 20 feet in a much shorter time. The Supreme Court would be flooded. You could tie your boat to the Washington Monument, and storm surges would make the Capitol unusable. For today, Paul Ehrlich in Washington, D.C., on the future shoreline of Chesapeake Bay. Stuff. Scientists are worried that the sustained droughts are consistent with the overall trend toward global warming. The farm crisis is just one of the possible spin-offs. Rising sea levels would eventually flood low-lying coastal areas. We could expect to lose all of Florida, Washington, D.C., and much of the Los Angeles basin. The irony is that most of the rapid climate change is going to be caused by human beings. Perhaps the biggest problem of all is political. A handful of industrial countries have grown rich consuming something like 80% of the world's resources. And we are most responsible for the world's environmental decline. So I was playing with the dish a couple days ago, um, looking for shows, because now that I can record um, 16 things at once, I'm recording all sorts of cool little shows. And the wife had been watching local news, Channel 4, just to check the weather. And it went into today's show, and they did this segment. Now, I want you, just like this is Sesame Street and shit, what's the same about this? Oh, we are back with our special series, Climate in Crisis, as NBC News launches a new climate unit dedicated to covering the global environment. And just this morning, a new poll shows Americans increasingly see climate change as a crisis and want the government to do more to tackle that problem. Greenland, a massive island at the top of the world and one of the most remote places on Earth. This breathtaking landscape is ground zero for climate change, where the Arctic is warming twice as fast as anywhere else on the planet. I traveled here to better understand what all these changes mean for us back home. We have clear signs of climate change where we're flying right now. Absolutely. We can see, especially in Greenland, the impact of the warming through the retreat of the glacier. Listening to those scientists say, like, it's it's so obvious that it's happening. I think it's just interesting that sometimes when we're here, we think, oh, you know, that's happening somewhere far away. But it's so obvious to those scientists. It's yeah. a no-brainer. NBC yeah. News recently launched a brand-new climate unit to bring you stories about the environment. And as you probably know, it's something I'm passionate about. It's something, Al, you're passionate yeah. about. Yeah, I've been it. thrilled because our, our uh, president of news, Noah Oppenheim, came to us about a month ago and said, we'd like to create this climate unit. Would you head it? jumped on board immediately and greenland is really one of those front lines of this crisis experts say climate change it's already here and it's causing our sea levels to rise that is threatening some iconic american landmarks and the impact of those rising sea levels are already being felt up and down the east coast from boston new york city to norfolk and miami at the rate we're going climate researchers predict a future where major cities including our nation's capital could look like this a lot of our landmarks, a lot of our history is along the coast. 
Lady Liberty. Well, a lot of our landmarks, like the Statue of Liberty or historic Jamestown, are located in you know critical areas of our country. Jamestown, Virginia, is at risk of being washed away. When you see that artist rendition of what goes on in D.C., what that would look like, it really kind of hits you hard to yep. see those monuments. On- I want to make sure you caught it good. Well, when you see the artist rendition of what goes on in D.C., what would look like, it really kind of hits you hard to see those monuments underwater. You think they did that on purpose? Of course they did that on purpose. It's alarmism. That's what they do. But it turns out the window has allegedly been fast closing for three decades. On May 4th, 1989, today's show environmentalist Dr. Paul Elkrick reported for the NBC broadcast and breathlessly predicted we can expect to lose all of Florida, Washington, D.C., and Los Angeles Basin. We'll be in rising waters with no arc in sight. That's that 30 years ago. When it was global warming. Or cooling, sorry. It was cooling back then. Does anybody believe that? They've been saying it for 30 years. I'm not saying there's not climate change. There is. I'm not a denier. What I deny is your alarmism that we're all going to be underwater. The ice cap was supposed to be gone by now. It got bigger last year. We are damaging the planet. But the doomsday prophecies they keep doing, it's a lie. It's just a lie. They then tweeted, blast the AC, cook a steak once a week. Where do you fall short in preventing climate change? Tell us your climate confessions. And shame on me, I clicked the link. Here are some of the confessions. I'm not making these up. I run a heavy equipment contracting company. We burn 28,000 gallons of diesel a month to build more stuff we don't need. Confessions implies I have something to feel guilty about. I don't. I only conserve electricity to lower my power bill. (laughs) I would rather the whole planet burn than give up stakes. Kick rocks, hippies. (laughs) This changed, I swear to God. I was going to read you crazy things. Oh my God, somebody hacked their site. I do not believe in man-made climate change and do absolutely nothing to prevent it in the way, shape, or form. I run my AC 24-7. I'm not going to sweat to appease this climate religion. I fly too much, partially due to work. But on the flip side, I don't own a car. So there's one. I drive 80 miles to and from work every day. I travel offerings to conferences flying. I think about the emissions to try to justify it with the plane that's going there anyway. I will use the easiest method of transportation for distance. I'm traveling. I think the climate has always been changing, and I'm not going to stop eating meat because of cult-like manipulation by the left. I know you, Jesse UV. I take long drives in the country just because. Who cares? I'll do what I like. I'll floor it in my gas-guzzling sports car just for fun. You do not matter to me. 
I don't do anything for the environment. I don't care. I eat meat every day and won't stop because it's good. I love life. I've worked hard to build it for all. Use your our work to save lives, pursue happiness. No such thing as CC, only weather. I'm eating bacon with breakfast this morning, and I'll have it again tomorrow. I use a lot of Q-tips. I can't find a better alternative. Q-tips. You're killing the planet with Q-tips? Are you serious? I live on Earth, where even if we achieve carbon neutrality in the first world, that's only 19.1% of the population. That's right. I use way too much product packaged and ridiculous amount of plastic. At school, oftentimes show up late for breakfast and get too much food to eat. I end up throwing a lot away. My sister had a lot of metal straws, but I thought they were annoying, so I threw those fuckers out. I buy more groceries than I need. I like the temperature low. K-cups, they're just too easy to use. I use Q-tips, another one. I load public transportation. I drive my gas-powered car, work every day by myself. My commute is less than four minutes, and public transformation is available. My electricity is included in my rent, so I have it to pay the same price every month, so I leave my lights on and blast the AC. I go to Starbucks several times a week, and I don't bring a reusable cup. I like my house at 85 in the winter and 55 in the summer. Deal with it, hippies. <laughs> I can't get behind the Impossible Burger. I'm sorry. My work lunches are the worst, so much disposable everything. I sleep with the air conditioner on year-round and justify it by recycling. So I'm going to write my confession. Oh, you have to pick a category. Plastic, meat, energy, food, paper, transportation, food waste... Oh, you have, to, you have to buy a category. Meat. I do and will eat beef. Human farts are worse than cow farts. But you hippies don't talk about that. <laughs> Okay, electricity. I want to do another one. I keep my AC slash heat at 70 degrees year round. And to top it off, I burn wood in a efficient wood stove. I will not be uncomfortable. Submit. Oh, this one. Fact, lighting accounts for 50% of global electricity. Switch to LED boob, uh, stuff. Transportation. Uh, I drive a Jeep Wrangler. And I do not feel sorry for it unless we live in caves and eat grass you will not be happy plus you sacrifice nothing boom there it is so there's the confessions. 
That wasn't as good as I thought it was going to be because it literally was people talking about Q-tips when I tuned in there yesterday. New York City says 1.1 million students could skip school for strike protest with that Thunberg, and we got some of that. Greta Thunberg to Congress, you're not trying hard enough. Sorry. Young people are the army political, Merkley said. No, they're not. Shut the fuck up. Alexander Ocasio-Cortez, she intersectionality is the fuck out of this. Listen to this. Remember when we said climate change would cause mass migration and the right called us crazy? Well, it's happening. And walling ourselves off in the world isn't a plan for our future. It's time to recognize climate refugees and our immigration policies. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Somebody responded, I'm pretty sure the climate isn't persecuting anyone. Because if Florida is supposed to go in to be underwater soon, like this lunatic has claims, perhaps we should first prepare for an onslaught of domestic refugees fleeing their underwater homes. Isn't that the truth? Another one. Representative Ilian Omar compares migrant detention centers to slave camps in Africa. I threw it in here. Okay. Sure it is. Sarah Silverman calls climate change girl the second coming of Jesus. And she's an atheist. Don't you love when lefties slam Christians as hokey fanatics but cling to their progressive pieties with as much reverence as zeal? Comedian and usually anti-Christian comedian Sarah Silverman tried to show social media users that she too understands the Christian perspective so long as it relates to climate change. Silverman, Silverman slammed conservatives for not seeing 15-year-old Swedish climate activist Greta Thunberg as a second coming. They all profess and wonder how Christians could champion Noah's Ark but not see the flood climate change in front of their very eyes a message to self-avowed agnostic whose weak ties to judaism are the only perspective on religion she has stop appropriating christianity at least for the sake of your credibility you missed the mark completely completing completely the comedian was very impressed with thungford's appearance of the trevor lawrence show we're going to show it in a second Silverman reacted with a strange christian fervor peering through the fog or anti-religious sentiment and seeing jesus christ you think you will recognize Jesus when he comes back? I see him all around. He is this girl, and you don't even see it. Yeah. Okay. CJR brags about putting climate agenda in front of one billion people. News consumers everywhere should prepare for the onslaught of climate change stories ahead of the UN Climate Summit next week. Instigated by the Columbian Journalist Review and The Nation, more than 250 entities joined forces to foster urgency and action regarding the climate crisis. Here's a few other stories. How extreme weather threatens people with disabilities. Intersectionality! Javier Bardem on Greenpeace Documentary Sanctuary and how Hollywood could spread the climate change message. They already did with the day after. Nobody believed it. Or the day after tomorrow. Whatever. The one with the guy frozen, had a walk. Yeah. Climate activists don't know how to talk to Christians. Industrialized militaries are a bigger part of the climate emergency than you know. CNN chief media correspondent Brian Seltzer gave it favorable coverage, even though CNN wasn't one of the partners. Hmm. Then, as we covered on the show, again, these people are so into this cult Climate anxiety groups are the new self-care. Support groups are growing around the country as activists seek to stage engage while 
seek to stay engaged while grappling with a feeling of frustration and hopelessness. They were dance parties, DJ sets, drum classes, and tutu-making workshops. Still, despite the buoyant mood, it wasn't just another festival tailored made for glossy Instagram photos. Instead, Catharsis on the Mall, which was inspired by Burning Man and took place on the National Mall in May, had a different aim, healing. Not surprisingly, part of the conversation included climate change, and within 24 hours of climate anxiety sessions being announced, all the seats were reserved. Amid laughters and ambient festival noise, 30 people gathered in a hot tent. 30 people! See how they do that? They they make it like it's everybody, because they're trying to make you think, oh, you're not cool unless you're sacrificing for the climate. 30 people were sitting in a hot tent and sat on rugs and lawn chairs to talk about their feelings of despair, depression, and anxiety. Debbie Chang, a volunteer with the D.C. chapter of Citizens Climate Lobby, led the group and said the genesis of the event came from noti- noticing the negativity of activities around her. There's not really a space, I don't think, for people to talk about those feelings. People don't want to dwell on negative emotions, but people want to be heard and validated. Attendees were asked to jot down emotions they felt when thinking about climate change and elaborate within small groups. After exploring the emotion, Chang led a discussion about coping mechanisms, including breathing exercises, yoga, meditation, and stretching. Every morning I stretch and think about Mother Earth. Jesus. As part of staying grounded in the work, the group also discussed what aspects of the movement made them hopeful, and naming these hopes, they were tasked with envisioning an ideal future and to imagine the first baby step they could take towards actualizing it. The the idea is, there's a lot of doom and gloom, and it's important to remember what it is you're working for. Woohoo! It's a very long article. I'm not going to play it because I got a long soundbite. And here you are. This is MSDNC freaking out about the climate. Thunberg again. Just, it's always doom gloom. We're all going to die. We're just going to die. Let's talk about this. We, We have to think about climate change and how we fight it in terms of net costs to us, right? There are things that feel like sacrifices, but if you look at the alternative, if we don't change certain behaviors, the world will flood, burn, and be destroyed. So when you talk about sacrifices to the way we eat, are you talking about individual choices or are you talking about government level, institutional level changes to how we eat? Well, it will absolutely have to be both, but it's hard to imagine any governmental legislation that's going to regulate uh, the meat industry. But I might take issue with the, the word sacrifice to mm-hmm. begin with um, for two reasons. One, acting on one's values can feel really good. You know, it can feel inspired. No, I'm with you. I agree with you. I think we probably shouldn't use the word sacrifice in this context because if you don't act on your values, you don't feel good, and the consequence could be the, the wrecking of the earth. Absolutely. And there's a good model for this in World War II, the home front efforts. Um, that regular Americans made regardless of their political leanings or their socioeconomic right. backgrounds. Um, driving at 35 miles per hour, we had a 94% income tax, highest rate income tax. We had rations on foods. Mm-hmm. And in a really wonderful fireside chat that I could never imagine our president giving, but FDR gave at the time, he said, look, not all of us have the privilege of fighting on the other side of mm-hmm. the ocean against the enemy. Not all of us have the privilege of producing munitions, but we can all participate 
on the home front. And when we look back at the changes that we've made during this period, after we have saved our free way of life, sacrifice is not the word we're going to use. And I think it's the same thing here when we look back or when our kids... It's a contribution. Thank you so much. And welcome to New York City. You came here on a zero-emissions boat. And part of me thinks that's because you love the climate. The other part of me wonders if that's just your Viking heritage. Maybe it is. It might be. Yeah. Tell, tell me why you did that. Why didn't you fly to New York City to come and, you know, speak at the UN and, and you know, inspire people to, to move forward in the climate change movement? I did it because I have, since a few years, stopped flying because of the enormous impact aviation has on the climate. Uh, individually and um, just to make a stand and uh, I am one of the very few people in the world who can actually do such a trip so I thought why not Wow <laughs> I mean I know I wouldn't do that as a kid and I wouldn't do it now um, but what what is inspiring is your determination and what's inspiring is that it doesn't just affect other young people it started to affect older generations in Sweden in Germany people are starting to call it the Greta effect where people are taking more trains since you started this movement they said they, they feel ashamed to fly unnecessarily in Europe your mom is an opera singer and she stopped flying which means she couldn't perform the way she used to do you sometimes feel bad that she can't perform, or, or are you more excited that she's not part of, I guess, polluting the planet? I don't care, honestly, about how she performs. She... <laughs> she she's, she's doing uh, musicals now, so, I mean, it, she had to change career, but it wasn't that big. And the planet is the most important... It's a fucking cult, man. It's just a fucking cult. To a hateful left, WAPO covers for Women's March ignores new members, board members' anti-Semitism. Meet the new Women March anti-Semites, same as the old Women March anti-Semites. On Monday, it was reported that inaugural women's co-chairs Bland, Mallory, and Sassar were being replaced with 16 new board members. The Washington Post has the scoop and headlines announcing Women's March cutting ties with three original board members accused of anti-Semitism. Made it sound like the radical left-wing group was finally taking a stand against anti-Semitism within its leadership, but that couldn't be further from the truth. Much of the controversy stems from an incident when Mallory attended a Nation of Islam event at which black nationalist Farrakhan made incendiary remarks about Jews, wrote, Sarah or Marissa J. Lang. The march's leadership tried to quell the outrage, reaching out to Jewish community and denouncing anti-Semitism, but leaders stopped short of denouncing Farrakhan, who is known for making violently anti-Semitic remarks. Wow, way to dodge the way many other examples of these women's radical bigoted and anti-Semitic word, radical Islamist. Sasa, our current campaign surrogate for Bernie Sanders, herself provided the first clue that the org wasn't just ridding itself of its hateful past with the announcement of the new board members. Warning against believing, clickbait headlines, she tweeted, how excited she was that this amazing group of women stepped up, most of whom I worked with years before. Zara Bilou, executive director of San Francisco Chapter of Council of American Islamic Relations, CARE, 
told the American Muslims for Palestine AMP conference of 2018, I'm clear about I'm not going to legitimize a country that I don't believe have the right to exist, and that's where I am. In a Facebook status update last November, Bella Brew wrote she was revisiting this over the weekend and hasn't changed or wavered one bit. The Israeli Defense Force, or IDF, are no better than ISIS. They're both genocidal terrorist organization. Bilu, or whatever the fuck her name is, has many more outrageous tweets. Some of the worst include, I'm more afraid of racist Zionists who support apartheid Israel than of the mentally ill young people the FBI recruits to join ISIS. The FBI recruits. Blaming Hamas for firing rockets at apartheid Israel is like blaming a woman for punching her rapist. Another newborn member, black queer feminist Charlene Carruthers, is a big BDS and Farrakhan fan who also tweeted, Jerusalem should not be listed as being in Israel and advocate for free community college education for all who want it in America because we send billions to Israel to fund apartheid. A third member of the board, Samia Assad, is a Palestinian activist who supported BDS and has posted pictures of herself with Sasser and Talib. This is what just a few hours of social media turned up about the board members, and WAPO ignored it all. All of it. Trying to get to the other ones I have. Asara uh, Q. Naomi, breaking. Women's March remove Linda Sassar, Tamika Mallory, Bob Bland from board. Think that will end into anti-Semitism problem? Not likely. Names like Zara Balu from anti-Semitic pro-BDS care to new board. She's on record saying Israel doesn't have the right to exist. Yeah. These are terrible. Uh, as Torn, Ish hit the fan. A.H. for Hezbollah having the courage to do what the Arab government won't. These are her tweets. This is democratic warmongering, Zionist Islamophobia, more frightening than anything from Donald Trump. Hillary Clinton suggested television in her Israel broadcast Thursday that Islamic State is hoping for Donald Trump's victory. Yeah. Anarcho-Zionists. I'm not sure it's possibly Zionists and nice. You know because you support apartheid, racism, murder, and war. No, you can't be a feminist and a Zionist. Was revisiting this over the weekend as change or wavering, and we already read that one. This other one is all fucked up. Hamas. There's a shitload of anti-Zionism stuff in here. It, it's, wow. They're just... Just imagine danger Israel would have faced if slingshots and sticks had reached Hamas. Reality, when was the last time Hamas demolished homes? Blaming Hamas for firing rockets is the rapist one. Just in case the scientists didn't hear me, Israel is an apartheid racist state which engaged in terrorism against Palestine. So the Women's March will continue to be a horrible organization. We move on to our Women's March. She should be the head, Omar. This was deleted by Ilian Omar this morning, and I would like to know why. Happy Father's Day to my Abu Nur. Said I am forever grateful to Allah for giving me the best father. John Levin, a spokeswoman 
A spokesperson for Ilian Omar sends me the following statement on her deleted tweet. Representative Omar and her family are substituted to constant threats, and so that's why she took it off. Andrew Kerr. This is an odd response. Nur Saad, a nickname. Odd, given that Nur Saad is part of her ex-husband's legal name. This from the congresswoman who just weeks ago looked at a local TV reporter in the eye and swore she was not separated from her current husband after having an affair with a campaign consultant, which is well documented. Omar said she has a sister named Leela Elmi, whose father's legal name per marriage certificate is Nursad Elmai. Certificates also show Leela grew up in the same tiny London community as ex-husband. Lest it be claimed that she merely called Leela her sister as slang for in-law or friend, this came during the period during which Omar swore under oath she had no contact with any of her husband's ex-family, her ex-husband's family, to not even know the names of any of the family members. Ahmad Elmi is also close to Sahara Noor, who Omar acknowledges her sister. When you go to Instagram page of Sahara Company, Grit Partners International, and click email, it drops an email to him. The company was created in 2019. The MSM would rather call you a conspiracy conspiracy theorist than actually investigate this story. This still comes down to the fact she married family members. She's an illegal citizen. That's how she got her citizenship. It's illegal. But I haven't seen any reporting on it lately. Report! Anti-Semitic harassment at U.S. college campuses hits historic levels. 70% increase. I mean, when all they're doing is teaching BDS, what do you expect? Man reportedly shouts Ali Akbar after stabbing Italian soldier. Yeah. So it's now it's in Italy. Facebook still auto-generates Islamic State Al-Qaeda pages. In the face of criticism that Facebook is not doing enough to combat extremist message, the company likes to say that its automated systems remove the vast majority of prohibitive content glorifying the Islamic State group and Al-Qaeda before it reported. But a whistleblower's complaint shows that Facebook itself has inadvertently provided two extremist groups with a networking and recruitment tool by producing dozens of pages in their names. But we got that white supremacist problem, right? Yeah. Right-wing terrorism. It's fucking horrible. Then we got this one. Federal judge cites new evidence of potential terrorism sympathies and denying bail for mechanic charge with sabotaging an American airline jetliner when they go to his phone, he had ISIS propaganda videos. Oh, that's 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 just not good, man. Mm. Then to other stuff, non-anti-Semitic. We got another handmade article. New York Times writer uses handmade sequel on Trump, brazen misogynist given to fascist rhetoric. New York Times columnist Mike Michelle Goldberg, latest Trump-fearing packet of fury, was promoted with a comic book image that took up the entire front page of the Sunday Review. The Changes Face of Dystopia is a sequel to Handmaid's Tale, The True Saves, if only that still worked in real life, which sounds like a bit of a spoiler. The actual column appeared inside in the headline, Margaret Atwood's Dystopian, Dystopia and Ours. 
Goldberg unashamedly conflated fiction and reality and saw the usual ominous parallels between Atwood's fantasy and reality under President Trump. After Donald Trump's election sales of The Handmaid's Tale, the book went catastrophic. In the article, it's hardly surprising that in 2016 the book resonates with people, particularly women, stunned that a brazen misogynist given to fascist rhetoric and backed by religious fundamentalists was taking power despite the wishes of majority of the population. As the Trump administration proceeded, as one unthinkable thing became unremarkable, Atwood's classic seems more and more prescient. You could argue that all this is melodrama, living under Trump may be deranging, but American women are incomparably freer than those in, for example, Saudi Arabia, and society that seems far closer to Gilead than her own. Whether with the fabled P-tape, the Mueller report, or rumored outtakes from The Apprentice, where he said to spout racial slurs, Trump's a bad guy. Yeah. Here's the problem with your logic. Fundamentalists did not back him. They just can't vote for Hillary because she's not a Christian. How do I say that? She's against everything Christians stand for. Everything. She wants abortion until, you know, college graduate. Ed Buck, charged with running a drug den in his West Hollywood apartment. He's a major Democrat and LGBTQ, EIEIO, political activist. It was a blip. Then this one I never heard of. Ex-NFL player alleged staged a high hate crime by trashing his own restaurant. Yet another hate crime hoax attempted to paint President Trump supporters racist. Former NFL player Edwan Lewis Kaufman, who played for the Redskins and Cowboys between 2012 and 16, was caught spray-painting pro-Trump and racist graffiti in his own restaurant, an apparent hate crime hoax. I put monkey, the N-word, and mega. Police also said the paint on the walls was fresh, and Kaufman had black, black spray paints on his hands. He's not a good criminal. He's not a good criminal. Then we have this. This is a pastor, a liberal one, John Pavlowitz, which we've covered on the show before. Lessons megas are teaching their children. People don't matter. Never apologize. Diversity diversity is dangerous. It's all about you. Compassion is a flaw. America is the world. Women are less than. Whiteness is better. Religion is a prop. When in doubt, lie. So somebody hammered him, and I think it sums it up. Lessons the left is teaching everyone. You're only a demographic to be pandered to. Bury your correction long after the damage is done. Diversity only matters for the sake of diversity. Compassion only comes with the force of government. Law and borders don't matter. Unborn babies are clumps of cells. Your money is the government's money. Only the government should have guns. Socialism is good. The Constitution is just a mean document. Government grants us our rights. And that is true. Then our last, we're going to hate tweets. Not a really good hateful et this week. That's good. Not too much evil to report. New York Times, uh, New York cops shoot career criminal in shootout. Onlookers yell death wishes at cops. I could not find the soundbite. I looked for this all day yesterday. Couldn't get it. 
On Tuesday, New York City police engaged in a shootout with a career criminal after they responded to a report for domestic assault after the shootout, which left the criminal dead and the officer with a bullet in his hand. Onlookers shouted profanities and death wishes at the police. One onlooker repeatedly screamed, Suck my dick! Everybody behind that line can suck my dick! The New York Post, while others, or as reported by the New York Post, while others shouted, Get the fuck out of here! All of you can die! I hope that happens! Gregory Edwards, 39, the criminal was killed, had been arrested 16 times, and was suspected of domestic assault. He exchanged fire with the officers, and they killed him. So, yeah. Jay-Z was right. We have a problem with the African-American community and cops. And I don't think it's the cops anymore. I just don't. So, let's get to some hate tweets. Tweet of the day! Republicans canceling state primaries left and right, all to smooth the road to the nomination for President Trump. The president says nothing to see here, and parties do this for incumbent presidents all the time. But is that really true? John Avalon knows he has our reality check this morning. Hi, John. Hey, guys. So look, no president likes getting a primary challenge. But President Trump's Republican Party has taken the unusual step of trying to block his challengers from even getting in front of voters. Now, to date, Republicans in South Carolina, Nevada, Arizona, and Kansas have decided to cancel their primaries entirely, while Michigan changed its rules to make it virtually impossible for any challenger to get a delegate. Now, Tim Trump says this is all perfectly normal. The president's trying to dismiss his three challengers, former Governor Bill Weld, Mark Sanford, and one-term Congressman Joe Walsh, as nothing but a publicity stunt, a laughingstock. But the fact is, there are plenty of times where challengers to incumbents got on the ballot. And when primaries have been canceled in the past, it's often due to a lack of anything resembling credible opponents. So in 1976, Ronald Reagan famously challenged President Ford from the right, suffered a series of defeats until the Gipper pulled out a win in North Carolina, went on to win 10 more primaries, including Texas, Georgia, and his native California, taking the fight all the way to the convention. Ford, of course, went on to lose narrowly to Jimmy Carter. Four years later, President Carter faced his own primary challenge. Again, the fight went to the convention. The Senator Ted Kennedy conceding defeat in a famous speech. The work goes on, the cause endures, the hope still lives, and the dream shall never die. And in 1992, President George H.W. Bush faced a primary challenge from former Reagan staffer and CNN host Pat Buchanan. Buchanan ran a conservative populist campaign, won 40% in New Hampshire. Not enough to win overall, but enough to continue his campaign, gaining almost three million primary votes and scoring a primetime speech at the convention, which columnist Molly Ivins memorably criticized as probably sounding better in the original German. You can see a pattern here. Presidents who got primary between 1976 and 92 lost the general election. But President Bill Clinton, George W. Bush and Barack Obama didn't face any serious interparty opposition. And so while several states did cancel their primaries in those years, it was because there were no credible candidates running against him. Barack Obama got a brush back in the West Virginia primary, but it was from a Texas felon who finagled his way onto the ballot. And this year, President Trump is facing three credible challengers, all of whom held elected office. They're long shots, to be sure. Trump is very popular among Republicans. But because of that, you'd think he wouldn't shy away from a fight he's likely to win. Usually, dancing with the stars is about, well, dancing and stars. Sean Spicer tested both aspects. He really isn't a star by any definition. And what he was doing out there was described by a judge as getting attacked by wasps. Now, 
I would likely give Spicy an attaboy for effort and even A-plus for creativity for dancing to Spice Up Your Life. That's the song. If it weren't for his final pirouette into absurdity. You see, President Trump's former press secretary slash propagandist in chief turned lime limbo wannabe, then made his mediocrity about the man with all the moves, God. Clearly, the judges aren't going to be with me. Let's send a message to Hollywood that those of us who stand for Christ won't be discounted. May God bless you. Now, I would not call out asking for Trump folk to vote for him. I'm sure there are plenty watching. And his connection to the man who uses fancy footwork around the truth could be a boost. But really, what he was doing here is just a dance of division. And it falls flat on its face when we foxtrot with the facts. First, the idea that being Christian is something that America would vote against flies in the face of the overwhelming majority of this country identifying as Christian. More specifically, is Lime Spice more Christian than any of these folks? They are all plenty churched up and fared plenty well. But hey, Sean Spicer has never been one to let facts get in the way of a good story. Some advice for our frilly friend. The show, like politics, is supposed to be about bringing people together. Dancing, not division. As your former boss is learning, a big tent is about being inclusive, not giving people a reason to feel excluded. Focus more on your feet and your fashion and leave matters of faith to your own prayers that the judges have a soft spot for that. They're just obsessed with it. And the reason why I cover all this impeachable offense stuff and fucking Cuomo going off about Spicer again they really truly believe you don't have a right to have a job unless you're a liberal. And if you've done anything with the Republican administration, and it doesn't have to be Trump, because remember, Bush lied, people died. Reagan lied. H. Bush lied. I mean, let's be honest. This Trump stuff's not new. It's what they do. They truly believe they're the smartest people in the room. They know everything. And if you lower yourself to work for anybody they don't like or any administration, you don't deserve a job, period. It's just not the media. It's any job. Pro-abortion fact-checkers want pro-life banned from Facebook. Fact-checkers have been given an enormous amount of authority over what's news to stays and what cannot be allowed to flourish on Facebook Pro-life organizations Live Action found this out the hard way last week after the platform was fact-checked by abortionists and Facebook threatened to limit the page's outreach. Although Facebook stepped back from the decision after Senator Joe Hawley and Cruz sent a letter to the company, the fact-checkers have not backed down. One of them, Dr. Jennifer Gunter, tweeted, People who lie about abortion should be banned from Facebook for spreading hate. In a BuzzFeed piece, part of the fact check was attributed to Gunter, who also decided that Facebook was a publisher, not a platform. She treated, tweeted, why would you take the opinion of forced birth trolls, who, by the way, can be politicians, over medical facts? Are you officially a propaganda machine now? We did it on our last podcast, but this is the article that shows that it went further than I thought. 
Gunter has written prolifically in the media from the New York Times to Teen Vogue. Live action, according to Gunter, is guilty of spreading hate because part of the goal is an intimidation of promoting harassment and physical violence against abortion providers. Hilariously, Gunter had previously been complaining that Facebook had censored her book by removing images of female genitalia from her book ads. The primary fact-checker for HealthCheck.org wrote an op-ed for Washington Post defending the decision. Ms. Daniel Grossman and Robin Schnicken wrote, Sometimes when tragedy strikes, the best medical treatment involves abortion because that's the fastest and safest way to save the pregnant woman's life, even though they deny that they are interested in having a shouting match with Leela Rose or Republican senators. According to them, only people with medical expertise can talk about abortion. Very few pro-lifers, mainstream pro-lifers, I'm not talking the far, far right, don't believe abortion to save the mother isn't a good thing. Don't believe abortion for rapist, somebody who's been raped, is a good thing. We're talking that you believe you can abort the baby as it's being born. That is some sick, sick shit. American divided on abortion issues, but media nearly unanimous. Like, this is a no-brainer article, but I wanted to cover it anyway. The American public is deeply divided on abortion issues, yet media outlets are nearly unanimous to support the procedure upon up until the minute of birth or shortly after. The Washington Free Beacon analyzed editorials in states that passed abortion laws just on one newspaper. The Augusta Chronicle in Georgia endorsed a pro-life bill that restricted abortion once a fetal heartbeat was detected in 2018. Gallup asked how many Americans identified as pro-choice versus pro-life. U.S. adults were evenly split with 48% saying they consider themselves pro-choice and 48 pro-life. In 2019, Gallup found that a higher percentage of women considered themselves to be pro-life, contrary to the claim of pro-abortion activists and Democratic politicians. Gallup interviewed 480 women and found that 43% considered themselves pro-choice, while 51 said they were pro-life. Of 529 men, 48 pro-choice, 46 pro-life. Age was also a major factor in support for abortion. Younger Americans overwhelmingly consider themselves pro-choice, but those numbers reverse the older one gets. As a particular abortion issue, specifically the timing of an abortion, Americans are clear. Gallup's asked people when abortion should be legal, and as with previous similar polls, found that Americans largely support abortion during the first trimester, but not the subsequent trimesters. 60% supported abortion during the first three months of pregnancy, while just 28 in the second and 13 in the third. There's no change from the last time we reported this on the show. Americans who support abortion exceptions for life of the mother, rape, incest, and if the child will be born with a life-threatening illness. Still, these exceptions receive less support in the third trimester than the first. Despite the view of the American people, media outlets and states that passed abortion laws overwhelmingly favor pro-abortion views. The Beacon found a total of 21 papers from 12 different states condemned heartbeat bills. Here are the states, all right? Georgia, Missouri, in 2019. 
Iowa, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, North Dakota, and Ohio also signed heartbeat bills into law. Alabama banned abortion in all stages. And all the papers literally were for it. And why is that? Because they're pushing the liberal agenda. They think they can brainwash people into believing whatever the fuck they want them to. The bill in California we talked about is now passed. Universities, public universities, have to offer abortion pills. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. And this one was way under the radar of your mainstream media. But I was going to make this the tweet of the day. Former Planned Parenthood president accuses organization of hypocrisy and intimidation. The recently fired president of Planned Parenthood, Lena Wynn, accused the nation's single largest abortion provider of hypocrisy and lack of care for women's health in an angry letter to the group's board of directors made public over the weekend. Planned Parenthood's board of directors fire Wynn in July. The group claimed that Wynn and board disagreed about her management style, according to the Washington Examiner. But Wynn says that the organization forced her out because she refused to put the political fight for abortion rights front and center making it a higher priority than Planned Parenthood's overall commitment to women's health care. At the time, the news of Wen's departure made headlines, particularly in pro-life circles, because it revealed Planned Parenthood's true agenda, expanding and promoting the practice of abortion at all costs. And Wen's own word from her letter to the board published this weekend, Planned Parenthood's most vocal activists prefer a strictly a stridently political abortion-first philosophy <clears throat> that ultimately devalues women's lives. In her letter, Wynn made clear exactly what led her departure less than a year after taking the reins from a long-time Planned Parenthood organization. I wanted to emphasize total women's health. They wanted to double down on abortion rights. It's now clear that since her firing, Wynn had been engaged in a dispute with Planned Parenthood's top brass over public statements about the organization. It seems they prefer to keep quiet and how Planned Parenthood conducts its business internally. In her letter, Wynn, who is currently pregnant, accused Planned Parenthood of holding her continued health care benefits hostage to her till she signed a blanket non-disclosure agreement literally imperiling the health and well-being of a pregnant woman and charges the group with hypocrisy for gagging her even as the Trump administration imposed its own global gag rule on abortion provider. It is deeply hypocritical that Planned Parenthood would attempt to enforce a gag order on its immediate past president CEO while fighting the Trump administration gag rule under Title X, when wrote, referring directly to recent Planned Parenthood decision withdraw from taking Federal X Title 10 funds because of the interview or the uh, <coughs> abortion shit. In the interview with Baltimore Sun, Wen said she regrets that her falling out Planned Parenthood has become public, but says she's being targeted as a reprodu- targeted as a reproductive health care provider and as a woman speaking out for other women. They want to silence my voice as a public health expert. I simply will not sign away my right to speak my mind. I won't compromise on my integrity. I'm a doctor. I have to be able to speak to my patients about reproductive health care. I'm a professor. I have to be able to speak to my students about reproductive health care. I cannot be gagged. Through their attorney, Planned Parenthood Board of Directors claimed to the Sun they were still in negotiations with Wen over ongoing compensation. 
Vinote to this. Abby Johnson says, hey, come on over to us. We'll take you. But isn't that interesting? Now, we thought it was because she didn't want to do men get pregnant shit, right? But I wonder if she was pregnant. I mean, you can't have an abortion clinic president walking around being pregnant. It just doesn't look right. Andrew Yang gets huge expansion to his email list. 500,000 people signed up to get the fill 512k get get the free 12k getaway. Sorry, I can't read today. And then we have this gem. I saved it for hate tweets, so we have something in hate tweets. Lauren Duca was totally savage in this piece. It's frustrating to see as a student, a young woman, see how somebody can so clearly take advantage of the system and capitalize on her supposed wokeness while not practicing what she's writing about. From BuzzFeed. Duca also spent this past summer teaching the feminist journalist a six-week New York University journalism course for both high school and college students. After Duca agreed to our interview, she also acquiesced to let me sit in on the final day of the class. She asked her students to come prepared with questions for her from what would be an AMA-style session in Washington Square Park. Her students sat in a circle around her in a wet grass. It was, I imagine, exactly what Tucker Carlson would envision a liberal journalism class to be. A bunch of kids from variety back, very backgrounds, ethnicities, orientations, and gender identities who could each afford a $6,500 class wearing T-shirts that said queer gender or kill patriarchy. In the park, Duke appraised her students for their ideas and pitches. You so totally learned what I was trying to teach you. Nearly four weeks after the course ended, however, her students sent a collective formal complaint to the heads of the NYU Journalism School about Duca's conduct. We are disappointed at the department and NYU for hiring a professor with more interest in promoting her book than teaching a group of students eager to learn, they wrote. In the days after the course ended, several of the students also reached out to me share more of the concerns. Her ability to exploit the movement is really frustrating, one former student said. I'll always remember her for trying to debate Shapiro on his radio show while teaching her class and just being annihilated when she complained that he had numbers and stuff. (laughs) Somebody wrote. So she gets the accusation that she took the school or the class just to to push her book. And then what does she do? She links to the article and says, I'm biased, but I suggest reading my book before deciding. I am no substance. How to Start a Revolution comes out Tuesday, 924. I poured my whole damn heart into this thing, and I believe it has a power to get millions invested in the political process. So, yeah. And then somebody went to Smartassville and said, yeah, I'll buy it when it's here. A picture of Dollar Tree. Can see stacks of those at Ollie's at clearance prices before the year's up. (laughs) She's a fucking fraud. The Hill brings us our next hate tweet. Hillary Clinton voter purging is another form of voter suppression. Between 2012 when President Obama ran and 2016 when I ran, 12 million voters were purged from the rolls. Narrator. The names purged from the rolls are people who had not voted in multiple elections and had up to registration information, and most of them were dead. Yeah. 
Then this leaked out. Brutally honest Emmy ballot detested sharp objects. Pose is pretentious. Too much Trump on SNL. One producer abandons past votes. Game of Thrones lost their way when they didn't have a book. While Veep should be subjected to a mercy rule. And outs voice beef. I've heard Blake Shelton and Adam Levine hate each other. <clears throat> so we'll just go down to, uh, was it Best Comedy Series? They Somebody got a hold of this shit, and these people are brutal. They're saying shit we say. Uh, Saturday Night Live was very hit and miss, and they did way too much Trump. And like a lot of people, I'm feeling Trump fatigue. That's why it was really smart for Comedy Central to do the David Space show after the Daily Show where he's not allowed to talk about Trump. I choose I love you, America, because I love how Sarah Silverman takes risks. She talks about Trump's America more than Trump's herself. So they're still liberals, but yeah. And then they pick the late show with fucking whatchamacallit because he's so good. Yeah. Crystal Balls, our next hate tweet. Network MSDNC has done real damage to the left due to promotion of Russian conspiracy theories. Are you sure? Hmm. New York Times had a big tweet this week. It was in Spanish, and it was Spanishly telling us they're stopping their Spanish version because even Latinas know they're super biased, is my theory. To our tweets of the day, Newsweek, this is actually an article. I didn't know where to file this because it's almost comedic. But we remember Two Scoops of Ice Cream. We remember they don't know where the light switches are. Do you remember all the silly things when Trump got elected? This one's even worse. Donald Trump stole pancakes and forgot a relative was dead while visiting family, cousin claims. From the article, a distant cousin of the president, Alice Mackey, related to Trump through his mother's family, the McLeods, said the commander-in-chief is an unpleasant man who has never used any of his wealth to help his mother's local community. The 79-year-old spoke in glowing terms about Trump's late mother, Mary Ann McLeod, who died in 2000, his older sister, Mary, Mary Ann Trump Berry, 82, saying they were both generous people who made many contributions to the Isle of Lewis, an island location in Scotland's far northern outer Hebrides archipelago. McKay told Scottish newspaper The National, I don't like the man at all. He's so unlike his mother and father. She recalled that Marianne and Fred Trump are lovely parents. I don't know what went wrong with him. My mom and dad were second cousins. Every time they were over here, they came to ours for dinner. McKay recalls one morning when the future president committed two social faux pas in quick succession. He was here one morning. I was busy making the pancakes, and he had forgotten my husband had died, she said. He put a few pancakes in his pockets and never said cheerio or everything. He stole pancakes. Is that stealing? Really? Why is this? This is how fucking pathetic they are, man. TDS is fucking so real. Our tweet of the day, and we'll go to another music break, is the sound for the Terminator trailer. I love this song. 
Um, it's really creepy with the Terminator. So I'm playing fucking TV or um, <clears throat> TV or, or it's actually movie soundtracks. Oh, what the fuck? It's different. New York Times opinion, dude, says the left is fucked up for ignoring the left's anti-Semitism and the onion doing a spot-on dogging of Vox. Enjoy. Because of social media, I believe that if all of the journalists who work for the New York Times and, frankly, every other paper in this country... That's your paper. Yep. ...got off Twitter for six months, we would see a wildly different and and improved uh, way of covering the news. And the reason for that is that Twitter... And, by the way, it's not just journalists. It's politicians. I was talking to... um, I was talking to the chief of staff of a, of a popular congresswoman, and he was talking about how all of the staffs of all of these politicians literally just look at Twitter, look at the reaction, and then calibrate what the politician's going to say based on that immediate response. And the same thing, I think, is happening in journalism, which is that we're looking to what enrages readers. And frankly, if you're a normal human being, you don't want to step into a minefield. No. I mean, with you know, exceptions. We all have. But yeah, yeah. I mean, but, but <laughs> yeah. that is yeah. the problem is that because we have just this immediate reader response, I fear that but it's we, sort of corrupting but, but the work frankly, that we do. frankly, the answer is that people should be able to step into the minefield. Of course. Fearlessly. Because unless we stand up to Twitter and that mob, nothing is going to change and Trump is going to get reelected because he makes Twitter his bitch. And Twitter makes Democrats their bitch. Mm-hmm. One thing. You're wrong. Here's why. To start, you're completely missing the point, and everything you think is actually at odds with reality when you look at the data. In fact, you're nowhere close to being accurate. It's simple to understand when you stop for a second and actually look at the issues. Once you open your eyes, you'll see that you're wrong about each and every one of them. Wrong, 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 wrong. But what about this other thing I heard? No. If the past is any indication of the future, not only is there no chance that you'll ever be right, All signs suggest you will never even come close once in your lifetime. The only way you'll ever be right is to repeat everything I say, word for word, to every single person you know. Until then, you're wrong.
Welcome back to Flyover Politic Podcast with Tony Reed. That's why they call me. Trying to get crazy with this, see? Don't you know I'm local? Now it's time for news and social media nuggets. The crazy stuff that makes your host lose his mind. Military corner decorated Iraq vet Chris Kelly to run against Ilion. I'm an anti-Semitist, Islamic or extreme extremist, Omar, in 2020. More to follow on him. I'm going to look him up. Lockheed Aerojet Rocketdyne working on Mach 5 cruise missile. Everybody thinks the Chinese have one, so they're like really into this. So we'll see. Air Force to institute new fitness requirements for commanders. It comes to find out they tested a lot of commanders and they fucking failed. The senior enlisted of the Air Force failed his PT test. Because remember, they don't do a lot of organized PT over there. My son-in-law fails his all the time because he's a fuck. Storm Area 51 has been canceled. That really hurts my goddamn feelings. God, I wanted to cover that. I thought it would be so fucking funny, but oh well. Life is cruel. Army surpasses recruiting goal and attracts more women. Like a lot of women joined. They showed a picture of a bunch of women signing up. Hmm. The Popeye's chicken sandwich is hurting military readiness. Popeye's Louisiana Kitchen set the world on fire August 12th, the release of a new crispy sandwich that the New Yorker called an exquisite slab of chicken breast, hefty and juicy and snow white in its crenantled armor of what uncommonly crispy fried batter. Households with long-standing devotion to Chick-fil-A were suddenly divided. Brother pitted against mother, mother against daughters, the great chicken war of 2019. The aftermath of the sandwich creation has been a portrait of American lethargy, drive through lines, stretch around the blocks, uniform her of patrons unwilling to park and lumber the 17 arduous steps from corridor to Popeye counter. One champion, desperate for a taste, breaks from the pack and ventures indoors. Philippines embodied running from the marathon, and this goes on and on. It's funny. It's really funny. It's on task and purpose. But um, they equate that it's hurting readiness because people... Got to go get it. And I read an article where the only place you really could find it is military bases. Um, they've been in the military for fucking ever. I don't eat at Popeyes or Popeyes or whatever. My wife, dogs, man, never said that right. So let's go into our college crazy. Not a lot of military stuff going on. Next week should be the uh, uh, Army Times edition. Remember, Chelsea Handler had a show on Netflix. It failed fucking miserably, so they're giving her another one. And she actually uttered this bullshit on TV. And I just, God, I had to start my college crazy with it. 
Well, and sometimes you have to put yourself in uncomfortable situations and feel uneasy about yourself and about things. And you did that many times in this documentary. You went to an open mic, right, at USC? Yeah. And you had to go up and I'm assuming you got some funny looks from people. But what was that experience like and, and what did you learn from it? It wasn't welcoming, you know. It was uh, there were there were black people in that room that were taking me to task saying, All you do is come in here and take, take, take. You making a, a documentary about white privilege is an example of your privilege. And I, y yes, that is correct. Mm. And it was good for me to hear. I like to be in uncomfortable situations. I, I get off on that. I want my I want my opinion changed. I want to think differently. Mm. Um, so instead of trying to convince people of my opinion, I wanted to be in a situation where my opinion was going to change from others. And um, having them kind of put me in my place was a great place to start for me. I get it. I am taking. I've taken a lot, and I want to give back. And I think it, it was a necessary conversation. And by the way, the whole problem is that white people don't want to be uncomfortable talking about these things. They don't want to ask the wrong questions. They don't want to offend black people. They don't want to say the wrong thing. Guess what? It's okay to be uncomfortable. Like, we can afford to be a little uncomfortable after everything that's happened and stretch our kind of brains and our bodies to to put ourselves in situations that aren't natural, yeah. that some, aren't comfortable. Something happened the next day, too, that was also uncomfortable for you, right? Yeah. After that open mic, you got called in uh, by the company? Yes, I got called in for a lot. I had to take sexual harassment training classes. I'm not sure where that came into Why? the picture. Where did that come into? I, just probably because of my handsy behavior, and oh, I'm always oh, touching yeah. people. And they're like, Chelsea, stop touching people. You can't do that at work anymore. And I'm like, really? As a woman? And they're like, no, nobody can touch each other right now. And I'm no, like, that's okay, that's right. good to know. Yeah. Uh, and uh, racial sensitivity classes. I mean, we should all be taking all of those classes. You know, we all have to learn how to be better. No, we don't. We don't need any more training. Jesus Christ, in the Army, I've learned more about sexual harassment, EO shit, than I learned about killing the fucking enemy because of fucking Clinton. Shut your yapper. What we need to learn is to be tolerant of other people. And you people can't do that. Duke Student Senate denies Christian organization rec recognition over traditional beliefs. The Duke Chronicle reported the Senate also talked about how this could discourage people who are LGBT from joining the club. Rachel Babber, a young life leader for Durham Chapel Hill, said that the organization does have an anti-discrimination clause and will not stop LGBT people from joining the organization. The group's sexual misconduct policy says that we do not in any way wish to exclude persons who engage in sexual misconduct or who practice a homosexual lifestyle from being recipients of ministry of God's grace and mercy as respect in Jesus Christ. We do, however, believe that such persons are not to serve as a staff or volunteer and work in young life. But they can still believe in God. We still let them believe in God. Come on, man. You wouldn't do that for fucking Muslim groups. And you know what? I guarantee there's some care shit out there on college campuses. Guarantee it. They throw motherfuckers from roof. Court rules in favor of student banned from passing out Jesus Loves You Valentine. On Valentine's Day in 2018, Polly Olson, a student at Northwest Wisconsin Technical College, handed out Valentine's and said, Jesus loves you. You have a purpose, and you are special on campus. But his administration said that she was disruptive due to school's policy, public assembly policy, which has since been replaced, repealed and replaced. 
also represented by the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, Will, which wrote a press release on the case decision. The fact that one person anonymously complained about the message does not rob Olson of her right to convey her message to others who willfully accept it. No one, including the complainer, accept her valentine. But once again, Christianity, oh no, 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 no. Mm-mm. You have no rights in our liberal sphere. Ivy League professor paints microaggressions as toxic rain in lecture. we got another one in a second that's going to blow your fucking mind. Columbia professor Daryl Wing Sue will give microaggression toxic rain at college campuses at the Virginia School at an event sponsored by Washington and Lee's Department of Cognitive and Behavioral Science and the Root Lecture Fund, according to a Washington and Lee news release. Sue has written a number of books on related subjects of racism and microaggression. The professor also co-founded the Asian American Psychological Association with his brother. Sue recently wrote about the micro in- micro-interventions are tactics used by individuals in order to stop microaggressions. Also, although microaggressions often seem harmless to observers, they're considered a form of everyday discrimination that can and have a cumulative and negative psychological impact. Oh, really? Uh, microaggressions, uh, microaggressions, uh, one University of California Law Los Angeles professor even argued that microaggressions can be lethal. Washington Lee College Republican and College Democrats did not respond to multiple media inquiries about this fucking retardation. Lethal? They killed themselves, so it was because of a microaggression? No, really. Boise State, this surprised the shit out of me. Reward student for unpacking white identity and recognizing their privileges. D'Angelo has published two other books on the topic, White Fragility, Why It's So Hard for White People to Talk About Racism, and Is Everyone Really Equal? An Introduction to Key Concept of Critical Social Justice Education. In the former, she wrote that white people raised in Western society are conditioned into a white supremacist worldview because it is the bedrock of our society and institution. The book Circle Page states that the group is intended for people who are interested in unpacking white identity and how white folks distance themselves from conversation about race, as well as learning how to engage white folks and recognizing their privilege. I don't see myself reading this. Also, and there's the Boise State Uniting for Inclusion and Leadership and Diversity, or the BUILD program. The BUILD program is a certificate program that supports campus educators to gain knowledge and skills to contribute to a welcoming, inclusive environment on campus. This program includes other events such as introductions to LGBTQIA plus identities and trans identities, developing inclusive practices. Building an inclusive reading list for your course and inclusive teaching means inclusive grading too. Inclusive, 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 which means if you're a person of color, you get an A. Hmm. High school cheerleader put on probation for posing with Trump 2020 banner. On Monday, cheerleaders from the North Carolina high school were put on probation for the remainder of the football season for posing with a Trump 2020 banner before a football game on August 30th. The North Stanley High School cheerleading squad was placed on probation by the NCAH 
SAA for posing with the Trump banner before a game. Official says all North Carolina schools have a policy against displaying political signs. The post, post, the photo was posted on Facebook, prompting some commentators to take issue. One wrote, why in the world would the school board allow this to happen? I am sad and very disappointed with NS. This is a high school football game, not a political rally. Shame on them. The Daily Mail noted NCHSAA Commissioner Q. Tucker told McClatchy News Group that probation is not punishment, but rather it serves as a notice of behavior or action that is against NCHSAA handbook policy or contrary to expectation of sportsmanship and proper behavior, according to the Charlotte Observer. She also said one of the rules we have is that every contest should be conducted in a wholesome athletic environment. We take that to mean that it's an environment where good sportsmanship is shown, where people feel safe, the respect for all people participating is shown. How would they not be safe with a banner? We are currently investigating this matter, but as of this morning we have determined this was not an act planned or endorsed by the school or staff. A student attending the event brought the flag into the game, which was not represent was not present when entering the gate. Stanley School School County Schools respect the right of its student staff as visitors express their opinions in a respectful manner, blah blah blah, but it said fucking Trump. Trump is bad. Um, some of the things has not defined the terms of probation and the school district stated that the team is expected to conduct cheering continue cheering. Congressman Richard Hudson of North Carolina night there sent a letter to the NCHS. I'm appalled these students are being punished for exercising their first amendment right to free speech. As leaders, we should be encouraging American youth to participate in our democracy and political process. And the reality is, at the end of the day, if it was the Hillary banner, an Obama banner, nobody would have touched this. Because you would have been called sexist or racist. But because it's a Trump banner, we get our undies in a bunch. Now it's time for the shit that's going to blow your goddamn mind. We have learned everything is racist on this show. Everything. From milk to blah. I mean, every podcast, I have something that is white, privileged, fucking racist, microaggressions. We just covered that, but... I never knew that the the concept of time is white. What if I told you that time has a race? A race in the contemporary way that we understand race in the United States. Typically, we talk about race in terms of black and white issues. In the African-American communities from which I come, we have a long-standing, multi-generational joke about what we call CP time, or colored people's time. Now, we no longer refer to African-Americans as colored, but this long-standing joke about our perpetual lateness to church, to cookouts, to family events, and even to our own funerals remains. I personally am a stickler for time. It's almost as if my mother, when I was growing up, said, we will not be those black people. So we typically arrive to events 30 minutes early. But today, I want to talk to you more about the political nature of time. For if time had a race, it would be white. White people own time. I know, I know. Making such quote-unquote 
incendiary statements makes us uncomfortable. Haven't we moved past the point where race really matters? Isn't race a heavy-handed concept? Shouldn't we go ahead with our enlightened progressive selves and relegate useless concepts like race to the dustbins of history? How will we ever get over racism if we keep on talking about race? Perhaps we should lock up our concepts of race in a time capsule, bury them, and dig them up in a thousand years, peer at them with the clearly more enlightened, raceless versions of ourselves that belong to the future. But you see there, that desire to mitigate the impact of race and racism shows up in how we attempt to manage time, in the ways we narrate history, in the ways we attempt to shove the negative truths of the present into the past, in the ways we attempt to argue that the future that we hope for is the present in which we're currently living. Now, when Barack Obama became president of the U.S. in 2008, many Americans declared that we were post-racial. I'm from the academy, where we're enamored with being post-everything. We're post-modern, we're post-structural, we're post-feminist. Post has become a simple academic appendage that we apply to a range of terms to mark the way we were. But prefixes alone don't have the power to make race and racism a thing of the past. The U.S. was never pre-raced. So to claim that we're post-race when we have yet to grapple with the impact of race on black people, Latinos, or the indigenous is disingenuous. Just about the moment that we were preparing to celebrate our post-racial future, our political conditions became the most racial they've been in the last 50 years. So today, I want to offer to you three observations about the past, the present, and the future of time as it relates to the combating of racism and white dominance. First, the past. Time has a history, and so do black people. But we treat time as though it is timeless, as though it has always been this way, as though it doesn't have a political history bound up with the plunder of indigenous lands, the genocide of indigenous people, and the stealing of Africans from their homeland. When white male European philosophers first thought to conceptualize time and history, one famously declared, Africa is no historical part of the world. He was essentially saying that Africans were people outside of history who had had no impact on time or the march of progress. This idea that black people have had no impact on history is one of the foundational ideas of white supremacy. It's the reason that Carter G. Woodson created Negro History Week in 1926. It's the reason that we continue to celebrate Black History Month in the U.S. every February. Now, we also see this idea that black people are people either alternately outside the bounds of time or stuck in the past in a scenario where, much as I'm doing right now, a black person stands up and insists that racism still matters, and a person, usually white, says to them, why are you stuck in the past? Why can't you move on? We have a black president. We're past all that. William Faulkner famously said, the past is never dead. It's not even past. But my good friend, Professor Christy Dotson says, our memory is longer than our lifespan. We carry, all of us, family and communal hopes and dreams with us. We don't have the luxury of letting go of the past. But sometimes, 
Our political conditions are so troubling that we don't know if we're living in the past or we're living in the present. Take, for instance, when Black Lives Matter protesters go out to protest unjust killings of black citizens by police, and the pictures that emerge from the protest look like they could have been taken 50 years ago. The past won't let us go. But still, let us press our way into the present. At present, I would argue that the racial struggles we are experiencing are clashes over time and space. What do I mean? Well, I've already told you that white people own time. Those in power dictate the pace of the workday. They dictate how much money our time is actually worth. And Professor George Lipsitz argues that white people even dictate the pace of social inclusion. They dictate how long it will actually take for minority groups to receive the rights that they have been fighting for. Let me loop back to the past quickly to give you an example. If you think about the civil rights movement and the cries of its leaders for freedom now, they were challenging the slow pace of white social inclusion. By 1965, the year the Voting Rights Act was passed, there had been a full 100 years between the end of the Civil War and the conferral of voting rights on African-American communities. Despite the urgency of a war, it still took a full 100 years for actual social inclusion to occur. Since 2012, conservative state legislatures across the U.S. have ramped up attempts to roll back African-American voting rights by passing restrictive voter ID laws and curtailing early voting opportunities. This past July, a federal court struck down North Carolina's voter ID law saying it, quote, targeted African-Americans with surgical precision. Restricting African-American inclusion in the body politic is a primary way that we attempt to manage and control people by managing and controlling time. But another place that we see these time-space clashes is in gentrifying cities like Atlanta, Brooklyn, Philadelphia, New Orleans, and Washington, D.C., places that have had black populations for generations. But now, in the name of urban renewal and progress, these communities are pushed out in service of bringing them into the 21st century. Sharon Holland, Professor Sharon Holland asked, what happens when a person who exists in time meets someone who only occupies space? These racial struggles are battles over those who are perceived to be space takers and those who are perceived to be world makers. Those who control the flow and thrust of history are considered world makers who own and master time. In other words, white people. But when Hegel famously said that Africa was no historical part of the world, he implied that it was merely a voluminous landmass taking up space at the bottom of the globe. Africans were space takers. So today, white people continue to control the flow and thrust of history while too often treating black people as though we are merely taking up space to which we are not entitled. Time and the march of progress is used to justify a stunning degree of violence towards the, our most vulnerable populations who being perceived as space takers rather than world makers are moved out of the places where they live in service of bringing them into the 21st century. Shortened lifespan, according to zip code, is just one example of the ways that time and space cohere in an unjust manner in the lives of black people. Children 
who were born in New Orleans zip code 70124, which is 93% white, can expect to live a full 25 years longer than children born in New Orleans zip code 70112, which is 60% black. Children born in Washington, D.C.'s wealthy Maryland suburbs can expect to live a full 20 years longer than children born in its downtown neighborhoods. ta Coates argues that the defining feature of being drafted into the black race is the inescapable robbery of time. We experience time discrimination, he tells us, not just as structural, but as personal. In lost moments of joy, lost moments of connection, lost quality of time with loved ones, and lost years of healthy quality of life. In the future, do you see black people? Do black people have a future? What if you belong to the very race of people who have always been pitted against time? What if your group is the group for whom a future was never imagined? These time-space clashes between protesters and police, between gentrifiers and residents, don't paint a very pretty picture of what America hopes for black people's future. If the present is any indicator, our children will be undereducated, health maladies will take their toll, and housing will continue to be unaffordable. So if we're really ready to talk about the future, perhaps we should begin by admitting that we're out of time. We black people have always been out of time. Time does not belong to us. Our lives are lives of perpetual urgency. Time is used to displace us. Or conversely, we are urged into complacency through endless calls to just be patient. But if past is prologue, let us seize upon the ways in which we're always out of time anyway to demand with urgency freedom now. I believe the future is what we make it. But first, we have to decide that time belongs to all of us. No, we don't all get equal time, but we can decide that the time that we do get is just and free. We can stop making your zip code the primary determinant of your lifespan. We can stop stealing learning time from black children through excessive use of suspensions and expulsions. We can stop stealing time from black people through long periods of incarceration for nonviolent crimes. The police can stop stealing time and black lives through use of excessive force. I believe the future is what we make it. But we can't get there on colored people's time. Or white time. Or your time. Or even my time. It's our time. Ours. Thank you. Fuck me, that's some dumbass shit. Talk about intersectionalities. You brought it all in around the subject of time. Really cute. But last time I checked the time, it didn't say white time. Shut the fuck up. But it's huge this week. Snopes, an intriguing rumor about cultural theft and fried chicken, lacks concrete evidence but alludes to a deeper truth. Did Colonel Sanders steal the KFC recipe from a black woman named Miss Childress? An intriguing rumor about cultural 
theft. Theft of culture. Because we got somebody's recipe. Really? You know, my family has a Yula Kaka recipe that I've talked about on this show. I can't hand that out. Because my mom gets mad if I even talk about handing it out. But it's out there. So, come the fuck on. Then we have culture appropriation outrage over Dia de Murto Barbie. Not so fast. On Thursday, Mattel launched Dia de Murto Barbie, a version of their canic doll that celebrates the Mexican Day of the Day holiday, and it was immediately the target of culture appropriation accusations. According to the official Barbie website, Barbie celebrates Dia de Muerto with a collectible doll inspired by the time-honored holiday. Dia de Muerto is a two-day holiday in early November when families gather to celebrate the lives of their departed loved ones. This colorful and lively event is filled with music, food, sweets, offerings, and flowers. Barbie Dia de Muerta, Muertos doll honors the tradition and symbols often seen throughout this time. Barbie doll's long, ruffled, embroidered dress is embellished with hearts and butterly, butterfly details. Blah, blah, blah. We don't give a fuck. Let's get to the stupid. Uh, New York Times was the first to pick it up. Of course. Won't be surprised at that. Dia de Murto Barbie. Respectful tribute or obviously cultural appropriation? Obviously. Brings the issue to the fore. Garcia speaks with several individuals, including Juan Carlos Aguera, the executive director of organizations that work to preserve and prevent present Mexican culture in New York, who share concern about Dia de Muertos being exploited or being, are there being a loss in translation. That said, Garcial spoke with a man who designed the Dia de Muerto Barbie doll, 34-year-old Javier Meba, who said he had pulled a lot of inspiration from his childhood visit to Mexico and modeled the dress for those after his mother and was paying homage to the shit. A Yahoo article, Mattel sold out Day of the Dead Barbie, called Cultural Appropriation at its Worst. Yet another piece alleged outrage, this one from the New York Daily News is titled, Barbie New Day of the Dead Doll Sparks Cultural Appropriation Backlash. Although the titles of the articles of New York Times, Yahoo, New, Do- New York Daily News, make it seem as though the concern regarding cultural appropriation is persuasive, it takes a lot of digging to finally find it. And here's someone's about it. As a Mexican, I'm definitely conflicted about the doll. Two thoughts. One, I need to know how much Barbie and Mattel have done to be more pro-Mexican in the current socio-political climate. Two, while Mexicans come in in all colors, a more brown-skinned doll would have been appropriate, especially because the traditional goes back to pre-Columbian times. Oh, fuck. You have too much time on line. Deanna OG, no, Day of the Dead is religious celebration for the indigenous people of Mexico. It is being used by Mattel or whatever corp owns Barbie to make money. No one believes Ken and Barbie celebrate that. Another one, Culture Preparation Barbie is coming out soon. Alex Quababo, we beg and plead to have actual Mexican representation. Redacto Rhino, for real, come on, I'm Latino and I'd be super happy to see little kids of any color play with this doll. It only helps spread cool things from our culture. Give it a break with this. My guess is a bunch of white Americans are getting insulted for the rest of us. And that's it right there. It used to be... It goes back to our fucking two little kids on the street corner a couple podcasts ago. If you didn't adopt black kids, you're a piece of shit. If you do now, you're still a piece of shit. And with this, 
Mattel has been getting bashed because they didn't have enough Barbies of color, and then they go out and do one that's super Mexican, and they're still pissed off. Jesus. BBC tells school children aged 9 to 12 there are more than 100 genders. In the series, the network instructs kids there are more than 100 gender identities. People who disagree with that, the BBC tells children, just don't know any better yet and could go to jail. The video features young children asking questions to teachers on various subjects to include human sexuality, gender, and relationship in one episode titled Understanding Sexual and Gender Identities. The BBC says gender is not a biological assignment, but rather reflects who you are inside. There are so many gender identities, one teacher tells young children. So we know we've got male and female, but there are over a hundred, if not more, gender identities now. Knowing that you got some people who might call themselves genderqueer, who are just like, I don't really want to be anything in particular. I'm just going to be me. The video includes Leo Lardi, a transgender activist born female, who now identifies as a male, tells the children about her transition, including some talk about her dick. Yeah. <clears throat> she also tells the children that the only way to happiness for her was to be true about who I was and let other people in on this. Elsewhere in the series, called The Big Talk, a teacher tells children that they can be jailed if they are found to be disrespecting or hateful to people because of difference that person re- perceives. Another episode's feature a head teacher who is married to someone of the same sex. She suggests to the children that you might be gay if you like someone of the same sex in a slightly different way than you do normally to your friends. The new series has caused a stir in Britain. Stephanie Davis Aria, founder of Transgender Trend, which represents parents' concern about children and transgenderism, told the Sunday Time, this is made up nonsense. People are free to identify as anything they like, but this does not change the reality that there are only two sexes. Former CNN host Pierce Morgan also criticized the new series. Now the host of Good Morning Britain, Morgan got into a tiff with journalist Benjamin Butterworth, a gay man who sought to defend the BBC films. Butterworth said he assumes Morgan was a cis man, biological male who actually identifies as a man. Listen, I'm not a cis man. You keep calling me a cis man. I'm a man, said Morgan. Well, that's fine, said Butterworth, and that's how you identify. Stop calling me it. Morgan said, I feel insulted and offended that you keep calling me a cis man when actually I'm a man. You see how this works when you get into the offense business, right? When you get into the office business, when someone is offended by all these terminologies, I'm offended you calling me a cis man, which is a pretty good fucking argument going back at him. <laughs> Weirdos. Netflix is going to team up with an emotional docuseries on illegal immigrants. And I guarantee somewhere in there, Obama's dick beaters are all over that fucking thing. SNL fires racist-ass comedian after Andrew Yang defends him. And we covered this last podcast. Well, now he's fired. And one of the fastest Twitter takedowns of recent memory, Saturday Night Live fired comedian Shane Gillis only four days after hiring him due to complaints of internet users who dug up videos of the comedian making insensitive comments, particularly about Chinese people. Gillis, a native of Pennsylvania and a budding stand-up comic, had his SNL career cut short on Monday. NBC removed Gillis from the legendary show just days after social media users dredged up a year-old video where Gillis made fun of Chinatown and referred to Chinese people as chinks. 
personnel, this blender appears all the more negligent due to fellow freshman hire Bowen Yang being Chinese. CNN writer Jeff Yang summed up the perspective of the internet outrage saying, yeah, if you want to know what being a person of color is like, it's literally that for every bow and yang-shaped step you take forward. You also take one racist-ass Shane Gillis-shaped step back. Gillis told Jake Tapper on Sunday, I believe that our country has become excessively punitive and vindictive about remarks that people find offensive or racist, and that we need to try to move beyond that if we can particularly in the case where the person is, in this case like me, a comedian whose words should be taken slightly different. One would think than a person who just called somebody a, sh- a chink. And where did it come from? The New York Times. Took his ass down. Found it. It wasn't random people. They did it. Rob Schneider. Dear Shane Gillis. As a former SNL cast member, I'm sorry that you had the misfortune of being a cast member during this era of culture unforgiveness where comedic misfires are subject to intolerable inquisitions of those who never risk bombing on stage themselves. And he was ass-raped on the internet. I mean, they just just attacked him mercilessly. To our crime, California cannabis users three times more likely to visit illegal pot shops than licensed dispensaries. And California does nothing about it because they don't believe in law and order. Woman cleared of murdering newborn daughter, secretly burying her in the backyard. This is a horrible story. On Thursday, a former Ohio high school cheerleader accused of murdering her newborn daughter and burying her in her backyard was acquitted of all murder-related charges. Brooke Schuyler Richardson, who's now 20, was acquitted of aggravated murder and voluntary manslaughter and child endangerment. She was sentenced to three years probation for a lesser charge of gross abuse of a corpse. On May 7, 2017, Richardson, who was 18 years old at the time, secretly gave birth to her daughter at 33 weeks gestation and buried her in the family backyard. The remains of the baby were found roughly two months later, according to NBC News. After an OBGYN reported that the teen told her she gave birth to a stillborn and buried her. Due to the baby's decay, the cause of death was unable to determine, subsequent straining the jury's ability to determine that the baby was murdered by Richardson beyond a reasonable doubt. The prosecution team argued that the teen set up the perfect crime to murder her baby girl and protect her perfect life. Shortly after murdering her daughter and placing her daughter in the dirt, not even having the decency to cover it with a blanket, she sent two elated text messages. My belly's back. My belly is back. Assistant Prosecutor Stephen Kippenson, court to NBC, <clears throat> the prosecution argued that the defendant's mother was obsessed with her parents and constantly monitored her weight. Fox News reporter Nippon also asked why the baby is born, a stillborn, was secretly buried. If it came out not breathing, why didn't she just try to help it? The prosecutor asked. If she thinks something is wrong, why didn't she call 911? The Daily Star reported that Richardson sent a gym selfie to her mother the day the baby was buried, holding up her t-shirt and showing off her belly. I'm literally so excited now just for dinner to wear something cute. Yay, my belly's back and now I'm talking. This oppor- Taking this opportunity to make it amazing, the text reportedly said. Before sentencing was doled out, Tracy Johnson, who was one of the many people to offer a statement before the court, Johnson is the baby's paternal grandmother, 
the mother of the baby's father, Trey Johnson, according to Dayton Daily News. Her selfish decision was not her only choice. She had a way out. During her sentencing on Friday, Richardson acknowledged that she can be selfish, but know that she's getting better. I would do anything you ask, she told the judge. I can sometimes be selfish, but I'm getting better. I'm forever sorry. I'm so sorry. I've heard a lot of people. I am really, really sorry, and I understand. According to the Ohio-based NBC affiliate, WCMH, Richardson will not be eligible to remove charges from her record if she abides by the terms of her probation for the next three years. Liberals. That's fucking heinous. And she walked away. She just walked away. Because we brainwash it's a woman's right to choose. I can kill my baby. Doesn't matter. Then we got ballsy crime. Cuffed suspect caught having sex in cop car. Paranab for riding bikes under the influence. Friday, a cop stopped a man and a woman who were riding bicycles with no lights on a street in Fernand Beach, a city outside Jacksonville. As two bikes cut across the road, they were almost hit by another vehicle due to them not having any lights on. Nassau County Sheriff's Office deputy noted, while questioning the suspects, Megan Mondero and Aaron Thomas, both in their 30s, patrolmen noted that they had smelled of booze and bloodshot eyes and slurred speech. Mondero, who declined to perform a field for sobriety test, was busted at the deputy concluded she was cycling while impaired. Megan was arrested and placed in the backseat of my patrol car. Officer Mark Hunter reported, <clears throat> The cop then turned his attention to Thomas, who was subsequently arrested after he performed poorly on sobriety tests and showed a sign of impairment. A search of Thomas's backpack turned up seven full cans of four loco and one empty. Thomas said the couple were coming from the Hammerstead, Hammerhead Beach Bar when stopped by police. Aaron was arrested placed in the backseat of my patrol car with Megan, who was already arrested. Both suspects were handcuffed before they placed in the cop car. While Hunter was outside in the squad car waiting for a vehicle to transport, <clears throat> Megan and Arnold took their clothes off and started having sex, according to the arrest report. Upon spotting the pair, Tristing, Hunter opened the door to stop them. By then, Aaron was naked and Megan had her pants down with her vagina area visible. I also observed her bra was halfway off and her breasts were fully visible the cop noted. As Thomas was being removed from the cruiser, he pulled away from a second deputy who knocked to the ground. The naked Thomas and moved his handcuffs hands to the front of his body, then fled through a parking lot. He was eventually corralled by a nearby cold stone creamery. When being transferred to another car, Mondano, who has Miss Thirsty tattoo on her left arm, allegedly became violent, started kicking at a deputy. As a result, being forced to the ground, Mondero suffered abrasion on her face, as seen in the mug shot. They're both very unattractive people. I would be an unattractive person, too. Mondero is locked up in lieu of a 12,508 bond, has been charged with DUI, resisting officers, exposure of sexual organs, and engaging in lascivious acts. Thompson, Thomas, who is being held without bond, faces similar charges, as well as escape and making threats against public officials. Yeah. That is some crazy ass shit. And since I'm still on my I hate AT&T and drug TV, overweight... I'm sorry, it's the wrong one. I was going to read that. Okay, I'll read it now that I did it. Overweight people more likely to have overweight dogs. Study says... We paid for that study too, by the way. Really. We're fat, so our dogs are fat because we feed them. We all eat. No shit. But the one I was going to really read... 
Investors claim AT&T created fake streaming service accounts to hide failure. It's imploding over there in AT&T land, and I love watching it. All right, let's uh, head on into uh, some lighter fare. By playing a soundbite, I'm not going to tell you what it is, but this sums up progressives in the age of Trump. is actually an adult flipping off Trump's helicopter because he was fundraising in California and they don't believe he should be out there. More on that in our This Is America. But we still have a funny. I had, I mean, I just don't understand who's in charge of the New York Times. I mean, this show's pretty much been about New York Times getting SNL guys fired, floating false Kavanaugh, And this is an actual article. It was tweeted by Seth Mandel. We regret to inform you the New York Times is at it again. The article, women poop at work. Get over it. It took two people to crap this story out from it. We may be living in an age where certain pockets of the corporate world are breathlessly adapting to women's needs, companies subsiding, uh, subsidized tampons, salary workshops, lactation rooms, but even in the world's most progressive workplaces, it's not a stretch to think that you might have an empowered female executive leading a meeting at one moment and then sneaking off to another floor to relieve herself. The next. Poop shame is real. And it disproportionately affects women who suffer from high rates of irritable bowel syndrome and inflamed bowel disease. In other words, the patriarchy has seeped into women's intestinal tracts. Let's call it putriarchy. (laughs) Girls aren't born with poo shame. It's something they're taught. Somebody says, too bad nobody taught these ladies not to write dumb articles. But then they go into the crust of it, if it's not comedic enough, the responses are comedic. I mean, it's just the news we knew. Boys laugh at loud farts. The more you know, like a thing, hero women cut the cheese intentionally more than gay dudes. This is from it. When those girls get a bit older, they learn to pass gas silently, and when boys do it loudly and think it's hilarious. Yes, there is a kind of of Kinley scale to gas passing, and it goes like this. According to a study called Fecal Matters that was published in a journal called Social Problems, adult heterosexual men are far more likely to engage in scatological humor than heterosexual women and are more likely to report intentional passing gas. Gay men are less likely to intentionally pass gas than heterosexual women, and lesbian women are somewhere in between. If a boy farts, every, everyone laughs, including the boys, says Sarah Albine, the author of Poop Happens, A History of the World from the Bottom Up. If a girl farts, she is mortified. 
then quotes like this, The bathroom is saturated with gender and fascinating ways. I mean, you're really stretching to try to bring pooping into America's a sexist, racist, hateful organization. Seriously. You are so stretching. But then the picture comes in line, and they had a picture with it. And I'm just going to read you some of those responses. What the fuck is happening in the far left stall? Why does the first stall have two sets of leg? What's happening in this illustration? Did the woman in the stall on the far left need help or something? And who took their shoes off? In the far right, there's a person with their shoes off. New York Times, are you feeling okay? Who takes their shoes off in a work bathroom while they poop? I work from home, so... By the way, what the hell is going on in this restroom? People sharing stalls? There's clearly a dude. And why is that person shoeless? Dear Lord, that's so much worse than pooping at your work. What is wrong with you? <laughs> I think we already knew that women poop at the New York Times. Much of the conversation on Twitter the last four days has been dominated by a couple of women who pooped at the New York Times doing the Kavanaugh peeps. (laughs) The two who did the Kavanaugh hit piece are pictured. Did you see the cover artwork? We thought we had. (laughs) And that was reference to the tweet. So, man, come on. Democracy dies in the dark, whatever their shit is now, I don't know. You fucking people are moon bats. From the finger to uh, This is America, they got so upset that he was there that they burned the fucking flag. And a guy trying to stop that burning, a pro-Trump protester, attempts to stop a flag burning and ends up in a tussle. Both detained immediately. Flag burning continued afterwards. It's getting intense out here. Clash between pro-Trump supporters and Antifa. Beverly Hills police have detained some people. Marine Corps Reserve veteran and Major League player Rick Monday saves the American flag from being burned by two protesters on the field during a Dodgers game. Last part is an MSDNC contributor. A person rammed their car into Trump Plaza, and he wanted to do it too. And it was all over him being Orange man bad. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Don't catch you slipping now. Look what I'm whipping now. This is America. Don't catch you slipping now. Don't catch you slipping now. It's time for the last soundbite. Like the media say when they are pushing liberal agenda stories. This is America in 2019. All right, so I'm out here in Beverly Hills where Donald Trump is hosting a fundraiser, and you have two extremes, groups that are fighting right there over this flag. So there's pro-Trump supporters. You also have Antifa as well. You have Beverly Hills police right over here watching out. You can see just how intense this is out here. These two groups not getting along tonight at all. This, as President Trump has his fundraiser, literally just not too far away from the Beverly Hills Hotel. We'll have more on this coming up on KCON 9 News.
fire the American flag. Can you imagine that? Well, they better lose him in a hurry. And Monday, when he realized what he was going to do, raced over and took the flag away from him. MSNBC commentator Ellie Mastal is pretty proud of how much he hates the president, and apparently anyone who lives in one of his properties. So much so, that he boasted on Twitter that he fantasizes driving his car into Trump condominium lobby. Early Wednesday morning, news broke that someone had driven their car into Trump Plaza, a luxury condominium building in New Rochelle, New York, last night. Three people were injured. While the police do not suspect it was intentional, Mastal suspected it was, even admitting that he secretly fantasized about ramming his own car into the building, many times. I've thought about driving my car through it, every time, he tweeted. Mastal seemed positively giddy at the notion that someone got to act out his secret violent wishes, even if there was no malice behind the crash. This tweet seems in character with the messages Mastal likes to promote on MSNBC. He regularly appears on Joy Reid's show, where he advocates destroying whites, and stopping Trump zombies from infecting everybody else. Calling for violence against Trump and anyone within his vicinity is not unusual for MSNBC commentators. H.T. Media E.T. Yeah. <clears throat> the left is just, they're inappropriate on so many levels. How many levels? Not going to read the article because we're long on time, but I wanted to get it in the podcast to show when you don't have a lot of news, we go back to Trump crazy, he stole pancakes, all this shit. This is an actual article from CNN, and it's part of their climate, climate hysterics bullshit. Thinking of sending your thoughts and prayers to those affected by tragedy or a national disaster? Not everyone wants them. While Christian values these gestures from religious people, some atheists and agnostics want to avoid them. A new study finds. The responses are what you thought. I'm an atheist, but I think just take it as well-wishing. But that's what the CNN cooked up. They're just so against thoughts and prayers. Everything's political. Every possible moment of every fucking thing is political, political, political. And they must ruin everything and it's fucking disappointing man it's just so disappointing 
So this wraps up another episode of Flyover Politic Podcast. Please feel free to share with your family and friends. Send comments to F-O-P-P-O-D-C-A-S-T at gmail.com. FOP Podcast, gmail.com. Get the show on SoundCloud, Podcast Addict, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, iTunes, Blueberry, Stitcher, and Pocket Cast. Remember to check out our Facebook page at FOP Podcast and our Twitter page at FOP Tony Reed. I'm going to do our next podcast um, Tuesday. So it'll be the 24th of September, year of our Lord, 2019. Hope we get some decent stuff. Make sure you stay cool. Still hot down here in the south. Everybody else still hot. My daughter sent me a picture of like fucking clouds and rain thing. I don't even know what rain is. We haven't had rain here in a month. Um, it's freaking absurd. Make sure you disconnect from all your devices. Don't give the yeah yeahs and tune back in on Tuesday for another exciting episode of Flower Politic Podcast. As always, thanks for listening. Take care. Thank you for listening to Flyover Politic Podcast. Please check out our Facebook page at FOP Podcast and Twitter account at FOP Tony Reed. Remember, it's a short ride. Make every day count.